is James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle stations! This is Captain Kirk. Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle stations. No! Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. I am Scott Gardner. And I'm Chris Honeywell. And I can barely contain myself. (laughs) And this is Star Trek Monthly Mondays number 21. Awesome. Yes. Now you can't contain yourself because you got something off of eBay, right? $42, man. $42, and it was like $20 in shipping, but you can't beat that. Vintage. Vintage, man. An original. Oh, my God. It's just awesome. It's a Japanese knockoff transporter. Uh, from, from what? It's it, it's a it's a Japanese knockoff of like a of a duplicate of the the Enterprise transporters. It's oh awesome! Yeah, it's very similar to the ones Demanza Corp makes that we can't afford. But I got it on the <laughs> cheap. On uh, I'm telling you, it's a buyer's market on eBay these days. So so does it have like blinky lights? or yeah, something? Yeah, it has or? blinky lights. It makes noises. It hums. Um, it seems to work. I put the cat through it earlier, and no way. As far as I could tell, the cat's the same. Yeah, it doesn't have like five legs, or it's inside out. I or anything the, no, like I that. sent the cat to. I, I found another guy who had another one in Rotterdam, and I sent the cat to Rotterdam and back. And it's the same cat, as far as I can tell. So. You know, fire that bad yeah, boy I, up. I, we have guests. We we can actually bring them no, to the Demonzacor Studios for this. I feel so handy too because it, it wasn't working quite right when I got it, but I actually fixed it with paper clips and aluminum foil. Man, <laughs> if you can believe that, I found a. a what you a, just pull it off your head? No, I, well, yeah, 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 off my hat. I uh, I found a tutorial on how I guess this goes wrong with these a lot. Yeah, we can bring our guests in with it this time. I'm very excited about that. Awesome, because we we have we we're gonna have a full panel for Star Trek. Three guests this tonight. week. We have three guests tonight. That's awesome. All right. Well, you ready to start? Or you want to fire that bad boy up and see if we can uh, we can bring our guests in? All right. Let's bring the first guest in. Who's our first guest? Our first guest is Lieutenant Commander John Wilson. Okay. 
okay. Got him. Hey, guys, how's it going? Hey, what's up, man? So this is what the Monzo Core looks like. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't think, huh? A lot of people... What's this green slimy thing in the corner? That's... Never mind that. Okay. That's... Yeah. Just... It's not a chair? No, it's it's definitely not a chair. You just... Avoid it. <laughs> okay. Help, but feel free to help yourself to anything at all except the uh, the bar over there. That's mine. Well, well, the transporter looks really nice. I wasn't sure it was going to work, but it looks like your paper clips did a good job. They, they, they sparked a little bit, but I don't think oh. that's unusual. How do you feel? Well, let me just make sure and check. Do you well, feel well, all just, there? You, you... I just opened up the pants here. Yep, everything's good. Contents so we're, we should be good to go. The same and everything. Oh, Jesus, I did not need to see that. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. Well, at least it didn't wind up on your forehead or anything like that. So, all right. All right, dude. That... Well, come on, let's right, well, go. Next... I to... I'm loving this shit. All right. Well, next up we have Juan Schwartz of the. Uh, he's a member. Uh, I think he's the founder, if I am not mistaken. He can tell us all about it though when he gets here. Of the San Francisco chapter of the Andorian Cosplayers Society. I got his coordinates. All right. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Okay. Um, <coughs> all right. Well, um, <coughs> wow. all right. Also, we got a third uh, guest. Don't we? Yes, our third guest that's uh, going to beam in uh, presently. Wait, I'm getting an Wait, item we... from him. Okay. He's not beaming in. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't Why not? either. He's, he's taking the Demonza Corp shuttlecraft. <laughs> I don't know, because he's some kind of pussy or something. Oh, it says here he doesn't want his molecules scrambled all over known space, boy. So oh, I guess I can't really argue with that. Well, Alright, well, it's down to the shuttlecraft bay then. Editing magic. <laughs> and here he is. It's Michael Bailey, podcaster extraordinaire. Yeah, and I wasn't even supposed to be here tonight, but... Demonzo Corps enacted a clause in my contract, a contract I don't even remember signing, by the way, that says that I have to do a show whenever Demonzo Corps asks me to. In other words, guys, they drafted me. They didn't. Oh, yes, they did. Were you just getting ready to go disco dancing or something? Because that's oh, quite an outfit, or, man. Oh, you like my? Do you like the beard? It, it like it like took like days to grow in, and I I kind of it's not quite as good as I want it to be. I I still look like you know I should be showing up on your door going, you know, according to Megan's law, I have to tell you I lived up <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because I'm kind of creeped out here. It doesn't even look real. I'm surprised this is the first time Megan's law has been brought up in our broadcast. But anyway, <laughs> God, almost two years of of two true freaks, and you're right. That is the first time nobody's it's been ever brought, up. brought that up to us before. It's I'm wow. It's, Nice but I, I was just gonna go, you know, get some sleep tonight. But Demonzo Core called me up, so here I am. 
ready to ready to ready to do whatever you guys want me to do. Well, we are very happy to have both of you fellas here. Are you ready to talk some Star Trek? I am oh, ready. Oh yes. All right. Awesome. You are now prisoners of the Klingon Empire against which you have committed a wanton act of war. Take off, sir! Maintain your post! Don't try to stop me, Captain. If the alien is creating these events, Captain, it is apparently capable of manipulating matter and mind. This one appears to be strengthened by violent intentions. It exists on the hate of others. You don't die yet. I now control this ship's power and life support systems. You will die of suffocation in the icy cold of space. So we're going to dive right into this, and we're going to original Star Trek with the episode The Day of the Dove. And reading from the Star Trek compendium, this is the synopsis for this episode. The USS Enterprise and a Klingon battlecruiser commanded by Kang the Klingon cross paths orbiting the planet Beta 12A. Kirk and company are convinced that the Klingons have murdered the Federation colonists on the planet, and Kang is convinced that the Enterprise has damaged his ship. In reality, the damages have been manufactured by a malevolent energy being that feeds off the insecurities and aggressive instincts of humanoids. Chekhov, convinced that his brother Piotr was killed by Klingons, is especially aggressive against Kang and his people. The Klingons attempt to conquer the Enterprise, but are instead captured. The entity turns the Enterprise into a battleground. Phasers are transformed into swords so that the crew members cannot vaporize each other, and wounds are inflicted and healed so that mortally injured individuals recover to fight again and again. Chekhov goes completely berserk and attempts to rape Kang's wife, science officer Mara. Finally, Kurt convinces Kang that they are all being manipulated by the hostile entity. The two commanders call a truce and join in a back-slapping session of mutual laughter. The creature is driven off the Enterprise by the resultant good feelings, and the Klingons are safely dropped off at the nearest outpost. And that is Day of the Dove. So, uh, how do we want to do this? Let's round robin, and we'll go with uh, John, since this is, uh, this is your first time on Two True Freaks, right? It is, it is, it is. Oh, awesome. Uh, my favorite part of this episode was the blackface. <laughs> and how like whenever Chekhov's like you know about to force himself on uh, Mara and then he gets thrust against the back you know backwards against the wall how you can see the smear marks of his yes. hands on the wall from Kara's face makeup yes. that was awesome <laughs> you know I was going to comment when it's my turn about the uh, about the enhanced effects but you know now I want them to go in and add one more thing in it which is Kang going mammy Mammy, yes. it's me, your sonny boy. <laughs> Don't you recognize your sonny boy? <laughs> you ain't heard anything yet. <laughs> it's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, there, when there was a point when all the Klingons like rushed the white guys into the into the elevator. That I'm like, this is people in blackface chasing people, the white people into an elevator. This is just 
goofy as hell. Well, well th- this is the Star Trek version of Birth of a Nation. So. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I love how the Klingons enter this show. They just str- He just, Kang just strides on and decks Kirk, like, so mm-hmm. much that he screws Kirk's hairdo up all all over the place. It's awesome. <laughs> Just walks in like he owns the place. Yeah, it was really it's cool. It's not often that you just see Kirk dropped like that and then not, you know, he doesn't get, he gets his revenge later, but yeah. not right on yeah, the spot like but, usual. But I, I was kind of surprised by that myself. <laughs> I was just like, wow, he just came in and owned Kirk. <laughs> and there's no like, you know, like jumping with both legs extended, no, no, uh, you know, ar- shoulder rolls, <laughs> no nothing. <It's> just <laughs> Yeah, I, I watched this one with Scotty and in, uh, in that part where Kang walks in and slaps Kirk down. Scotty kept looking at me like, isn't Kirk going to get up and kick his ass? But- <laughs> this is Kirk, right? Kirk? Yeah. And and of course, since Kling- or since Chekhov's got the, the scream, they, they pull out the Morocco torture machine on him and give him a little quick shave. I like that. Now, I tried my best to spot the, the thing that they were using, and I couldn't ever get a good look at it, but it wasn't the same one from the Mirror Universe episode, was it? Because it, that was it looked di- like it might be. The, I, don't th- I don't know if it looked the same design, but it was definitely the same idea. Yeah. I just thought in the, in, in the future that they would have shaping technology down more, that it wouldn't be that painful, but apparently <laughs> they, they got rid of headaches, but not razor burn, I guess. <laughs> Poor Chekhov, man. Maybe it's just it's, punishment because he's a secret rapist. Very, very <laughs> beautiful. And then, like, he has his hand over her mouth the whole time he's, like, pretending to try to, like, assault her and everything. I'm like, you're not doing it right, Chekhov. That, that's not what you're <laughs> And once again, you know, like, Megan's law is... It's like you're in a 12-year-old fake kiss. Yes, <laughs> No, step away, boy. Let me show you how yeah, it's done. You're, what? You're raping, you're raping like a 12-year-old, Chekhov. And and Kirk, Kirk knew what was going on right away. Well, it, it, you know, Shatner's such a great actor because I could tell he was – because they were also all their, all their, you know, primal feelings were there. So they were all lusty too probably. So when Kirk was around the Klingon lady, there were a couple scenes where he, you could see him getting a little hot and bothered himself, you know? It was the black and white stripy eyeshadow. That's what did it for No, it's that she was a female and he's Captain Kirk. All he needs are breasts. We'll go after it. And, uh, is, he the Andrew, is he the Andrew Dice Clay of, of, the, uh, of Intergalactic? You know, all he needs is two tits, a hole, and a heartbeat? Is that what you're suggesting? Do you need anything else? I'm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> I'm talking to three married men. That's what cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, because normally when you talk to married men, it's, you know, as, as Sheila, the 16-year-old girl, because you work for that company that tries to trap pedophiles for network TV shows. Hey, that's a lot of fun, so, man. I'm sure it is. I'm, I'm thinking of calling in my old high school vice principal for, for them. I'm kind of suspicious of that guy. Wow. I've I've been I've been I've been cruising around on his chat lines as Trixie lately, I'm telling him about my schoolgirl outfit. It just won't stay up. Anyway, <laughs> this is a historic you- episode because this is where the 
very beginning of Two True Freaks Star Trek Monthly Mondays theme song starts. That's right. Well, it used to be the start at the mm-hmm. theme, uh, you know, of all Two True general. Freaks. Yeah. You've jeopardized the Federation! Keep your fucking hands off me! Just keep away! Your feelings might be hurt, your green-blooded half-breed! May I say that I have not thoroughly enjoyed serving with humans. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! <laughs> no, when that came up, I was like, hey, I know where that's from. You hear the music. I love that music. <laughs> I uh, was telling this to Chris before we started uh, recording. I am shocked at how the, you know, quote unquote, primitive special effects of this series sometimes look a hell of a lot better than first and second and even like later seasons of Next Gen. Yeah. And, and how the ship. I mean, when they get to sets, it's obviously a set because they like have the weird colored sky and everything looks like it's made of styrofoam. Right. Um, which I'll actually get back to in the next gen episode for this month. But when they're in the Enterprise, I'm like, wow, I buy this as a ship. I don't buy this as a bunch of sets connected together. It's like watching next gen when I when I buy it as a, a ship and not a place where actors are, are pretending to be you know, space explorers. And with I all really the action, enjoyed that. With all the action of this, we had a lot of really great camera work, just over-the-head shots mm-hmm. and all sorts of good stuff that really made you feel like this is, you know, a construction, you know, the place where people live. Well, what, one well, thing I notice is when you have trouble in engineering, when there's people fighting in engineering, they have to do... The way engineering was set up, I think they had to shoot to get everybody in there. They had to do a lot of shots from above and stuff. So it always ended up being more creative whenever any when the shit would go down in engineering. Right. Well, the camera work in general was really good in this episode, especially like when Chekhov was playing Boy Rapist. Um, you know, the, the close-ups on his face were incredibly, incredibly creepy. Yeah. yeah. And, and very, very effective for what they were going for. And it, and it went so far as to make me uncomfortable. I don't know if they would which, do that with a major character nowadays. You, you probably couldn't. But then again, I hate to say this, the connotation of rape has, has gotten more politically correct-sensitive nowadays where well I, I don't know i mean i don't know yeah i mean 20 20 30 years ago you had a uh, general hospital where luke rapes laura and, they and they're the married. great couple yeah. of that of that series so that's true that is how they met accepting. um yeah well that's also the underlying thing in the part in uh, gone with the wind where uh, brett scoops up scarlet and walks up the staircase I mean, that's a, one of the most famous scenes in cinematic history, and what he's doing is picking her ass up and taking her upstairs to have his way with her. But people don't seem to remember that part well, they, of the story. Because they just it's think of just the movie as romantic. Yeah, they look yeah. at it as this romance movie, so they don't look at that, you know, they don't think of it as that aspect of it. Yeah, right. that's really weird. Well, ba- this was back in the time where, you know, the heroes would always just like. You know, they'd be fighting, like, arguing with the girl. She would slap them, and then they would grab their hands and mash their face against her face. And she would go, <laughs> then, like, after about five seconds, you know, she would wrap her arms around their neck. So 
you know, like all you have to do is kiss a woman yeah, really hard, just, and all of a sudden she's into it. As long as you can hold that kiss for five <laughs> seconds or more. Oh, is that not what just, you're supposed to do? Yeah, just, don't I you guys know the five second rule? If you could just hold them in a kiss for five <laughs> seconds, they just melt and go. Oh, okay, this is awesome. But oh, you're mine was, now. <laughs> but if this was done today, it would be like a major character defining moment and would have ramifications. I mean, if this was done on like a CW show, it would be like. You can't trust him. He tried to rape you, but I love him. That kind of thing. Uh-huh. And in here, it's right. it's kind of just not so much. Glo- well, it well, is kind of. They, 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 they the just write it off. They write it off. To <laughs> yeah, it's completely the just. No, it's there the and then it's gone. But you know, I mean, I get the feeling that the creature isn't pulling out anything that isn't already there. For some reason, Chekhov was way more susceptible than anybody to the point of where it was. You know, which made me say that Chekhov was probably the one that had the most rape in him. Anybody there, you know what I mean? Well, you know, if you had that hair... I sense much rape in you. Yes. Much rape in this one. (laughs) No, but if you had that hair and were trying to be like the Davy Jones of the Star Trek series, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd have a lot of pent-up aggression, too. So, I mean, because Davy Jones was getting trimmed right and left, I don't think that uh, Walter Koenig was probably... Having the same luck with the ladies until later in like the seventies when, well, never mind. (laughs) Keep it in the pants sometime because wasn't it on the apple when they go to the land? He's on the landing party with the the blonde, you know, red skirt who couldn't act, and like they're all making out in the the clearing and stuff. Inspector, like you're you're on you're on you're on the job, you're on an away mission, and this is what you're going to do with your time. Well, one of the things that shocked me right away in this episode is that they go, they they go, they have an away party. There's a red shirt, and he doesn't get killed. And I was really disappointed. Right, by that. right. Well, there was that, that one point where they're like, "We're going to kill one of you," and and then I'm looking, and you can see right down the line, and standing just sort of ahead of, at the end of the line and ahead of everybody is a guy in the red shirt with kind of a gut, and he's just a, you know, obvious character actor actor extra, and it's like, oh, here we go. I forgot it was Chekhov. <laughs> it's always Chekhov. It's just like Spectre of the Gun. You know, he's making out with the girl and getting all hot-headed. And this is the second episode in a row. The last the last one we did was Who Mourns for Adonis, where there was rape implied in it with, mm, you know, God even rape. Even more strongly there, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah is, super old-fashioned God rape. Is it just because that was more in the... I don't quite know how to say this, but in popular culture and, and in literature and all that, it seemed like it was more acceptable, well, like like Scott was talking about with Rhett Butler. Well, the Greek gods you know? were notorious. The Greek gods, like, it's funny because, you know, people think of gods as morally infallible, but the Greek gods weren't morally infallible. They, you know, if they, they could ask you for a sacrifice, it may not be for a good cause, but if they're your yeah. god, you have to follow them. And they were constantly, like, cheating on their wives. You know, within the gods, they were doing all... You know, they were screwing each other over left and right. So, you know, they weren't... They were just gods by force of power, you know, not by any kind of moral superiority. So, you know, (laughs) he wasn't acting out of character. Every time I see that scene in Who Mourns for Adonis, I think, I wonder if this is what the Immaculate Conception was like. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) With thunder and lightning. (laughs) Back to Day of the Dove. Fuzz-faced goons! (laughs) 
with all your primal anger, it's not you fuckface Klingon bastard shit bags. It's you fuzz fuzz-faced goons. Well, it's also, <laughs> you go to the devil. I mean, they can go yeah. to hell. You can go to the devil. Now, see, I'm a little. I was a little bit surprised by that because this is well past when Kirk had said, "Let's, Let's get, get the, the hell, hell out, out of, here. of here in City on the Edge of Forever." But, so I was a little bit surprised he didn't say "go to hell." You know why he? Am you I, know why he got to say that in City on the Edge of Forever? Because Harlan Ellison was the writer, and. It was such a powerful episode that they could get away with it out of sheer force of drama, probably with the right. with the censors. When you do, when you get, when you have those special quote unquote special shows that are more dramatic than the other ones, you can always get yeah. away with a little more. Uh, you know, I, I remember every once in a while, sixty minutes would have swearing, have people swearing in it if it was an important story. Yeah, they wouldn't bleep it out. They would yeah. just leave it in because because it's raw and real and, 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 and all of that. Day of the Dove might not have been as important, I guess. As... No. <laughs> now, no. did you guys watch the... the original print or the enhanced? I have no idea which one. I, it was on You'd YouTube. know if you saw the... You, I, you saw I the, the Yeah, you saw the original probably, Michael. Because if it's the enhanced, you would have noticed it because the Enterprise looks really nice, you know. The planets, whenever you see a planet, it's just like, ooh, pretty. There's a, a great graphic in, in the enhanced one where they first spot the Klingon vessel. And it comes, like, swooping in. Oh, yeah, between comes, the nacelles with the rear yeah, view? Right, yeah, it's great. And it looks oh. like something out of one of the movies or something. It's a really good one. But it's, you know, it's a full-size Klingon battlecruiser you know, quickly like swooping in and, and coming right up behind the Enterprise. It was a really, really good shot. It was it this it was worth watching just for that shot. It it's was like a hello, we it's, are now on your ass. Yep. You can go yeah. onto YouTube and all those enhanced ones, they always put up what all the cha- they always put clips up of all the uh improvements that they made I on mean, them. So you can just see the effect shots up on YouTube. Oh cool. So, so going back to that devil line, because um, there's a continuity nitpick, because Kang here says we have no devil, but then you know twenty years later in Star Trek: The Next Generation, when they do that uh, very terrible episode, devils do with Ardra, oh and God. she tends to be the Klingon devil. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so thought I'd bring out that little continuity clash there. Yeah. Well, at the, uh, yeah, at this point, it's not. Yeah, you're right. No, 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 but this is the source of it, yeah. I, I thought of that, too. I almost put that in my notes, but I've uh, I've been refraining from doing that in the comic book ones because as much as I'm really enjoying these stories, I've had to kind of rein in my Star Trek knowledge of things that would come later on because a lot of this stuff ends up getting heavily contradicted by later continuity but it, it's still fun when you when you find things like that and you go wait a minute you know, i remember on like ds9 or something when they said blah 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 you know so it doesn't quite fit but you know this is in the you know this is well before any of that sort of continuity or what mike go ahead with your thoughts on this one well it was actually something that uh that chris and i were talking about when he first called me in is that once again there is a connection between this episode and the next gen episode y'all we're going to be covering this week in that in both of them an an omnipotent type being is playing with the enterprise crew and doing war games with them yeah and tempting them to do and in and in this one we have 
the Star Trek crew fighting with swords and all that. And in the, in the next gen, we have like Napoleonic soldiers with laser rifles. And Excellent job, so, sir. Excellent job. Nice. So, uh, there's more. Finding parallels between them. There's more, yeah. There's Chris more, has Scott. Got more, actually. There's, there's violence towards Klingon women in both of them, too. <laughs> That's right. well, is that violence? Ma- I thought that. I thought this is sex. Yes, yeah, so, well, there's, there's mating related violence against Klingon women in both. There's no sex in your violence. Yeah, Chris. but the thing is, is that when you really think about it, then he wasn't raping her. He was just doing Klingon foreplay. Right, but it's violent. <laughs> it involved hitting her in the head and knocking her back, you know, into a backflip onto the ground, which did <laughs> definitely get her horn on, but. In, yeah, in so we said that Mara might have actually liked the whole checkoff scene. Well, that's you know that's what I was wondering about that because if her if, if you know she's cling, she, you know the the creatures playing on all of them, it's actually like creating memories in their head. So you would think that yeah, it would. Although uh, I don't know if 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 like the energy created by sex, unless it was like hate sex, <laughs> you know, would 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 fuel the creature, or it would just be maybe a side effect of uh, its effect of winding people up. But this is also the first episode in each series where we see a Klingon woman. That's right. That is, uh, I didn't know that, but it it seemed like that because it seemed like a big deal that she was there. Yeah. I'm Even though right. I've seen like a, only a handful of original Trek, and I have to say, guys, thank you for turning me on to original Trek because I never really thought to check it out before. But while I don't like everything about it, one, I understand Kirk now. I get Kirk. I get Kirk, the gestalt of Kirk. Yes. So that's that's really cool. And two, I'm just enjoying the hell out of it. And I see why people like it so much. Because, as you guys have pointed out a lot, you know, it, it is more science fiction than Star Wars, which is what I'm more used to uh, with this sort of thing. And two, while the acting is a little overboard... Sometimes it's really it's freaking amazing. good, and there's yeah. a, there's a lot of emotional undertones to this yeah. series that I think people who haven't watched it yet and probably write it off as kind of a cheesy '60s show like Batman or or Captain Nice or something like that. I was just pulling that one out of my ass. I apologize, <laughs> um, but but really. I, I get why people have such an emotional connection yeah. to this series, this particular. It's it's all moment. about the main characters. The main characters mesh so well in writing, conception, and acting. And they were all here for this episode too, yeah. which was kind of I liked seeing everybody. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was going to comment on that as well. Lately, we've the been one- getting a lot of Scotty episodes where Scotty's had a lot of FaceTime in it. And I, I love Scotty. James Doohan's just an, such an awesome actor. And, you know, he get he got a lot of comedy. And we got to see McCoy go berserk in this one, too, which is always good. <laughs> yeah, that was Murders! awesome. No, no, I really liked watching McCoy go apeshit. I really did. Because I'm finding that the more I watch this series, the more Bones is, like, one of my favorite characters. He really is just, very good. Just because of one DeForest Kelly's portrayal of the character and how he, you know, it, it just is completely, I don't see him as an actor, I see him as, as Bones, but also because he is a great counterpoint to Kirk and Spock. 
He's not yeah. the middle ground between the two of them, but he is the third essential part of the show. Right. Where you have Scott, who is all, I mean, Spock, who is all super ego, and Kirk, who is id. You need the ego, and that's what Bone serves as. I've always seen Kirk as the middle ground between those two, actually. You know, really? between those two. Yeah. Well, you've very watched much more so. than I have, so, uh, you know, I, I won't I won't argue that point because uh, as I get on, I may actually agree with that. But just in the episodes I've seen, it seems that way. Mm-hmm. And I grew up on the movies, and so my favorite parts of the movies were where you had the three, like, in Kirk's lounge or something, hashing out the problem of the episode, like the Genesis device. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. My, my favorite line from Star Trek 2, or one of them, is where uh, Bones is like, you know, according to myth, God created the world in six days, but watch out, here comes Genesis, we'll make it for you in six minutes. Yeah, I and love then, that. And then, well, uh, you know, Star Trek 5 catches a lot of shit from the fans, but I think that the Kirk, Spock, McCoy moments of that movie salvage that movie i think those are excellent and i think it's some of the best trio moments we ever got in the movies well because they had in that you had kirk you had shatner directing so you had one of the actors directing and and actors directing are notorious for understanding the characters you know and playing on that and and they were messing up his budget for his special effects and stuff so that stuff wasn't working out but yeah all the character stuff the only thing that was kind of weird in that was the like Scotty and Uhura thing that was sort of happening was a little and him weird. bumping his head after saying I know this ship like the back of my hand Dong. yeah cheap laugh <laughs> yeah you had you had a mess story with a bad ending filled with lots of good moments oh like like I haven't seen it uh, since the theater but I just absolutely remember loving the opening scene where Spock saves Kirk and then they're all sitting around the campfire just just talking. <laughs> just just talking about their lives and how they feel and then trying to sing row, 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 row your row, boat. Row, row, and, row. and Spock just not getting it, but that's the kind of thing I get into in stories. You know, if you make me like the characters, I'll stick around. You know, if I don't care about your characters, you can have, like, the best special effects or the most awesome fight scenes ever. But, um... But, yeah, I mean... What made that me approve of that movie is when Kirk finally met God and then wouldn't give him his ship. That's that's what made that's what made me go, okay, I like this movie because that's what Kirk would... I like Kirk going, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why would you need my ship? Wait, no, my ship? Wait, you want my ship? Uh, and I just love that. In the face of God, everybody else is in awe and on their knees and Kirk's just like, I don't know about having the ship thing. It's kind of my ship. And uh, what a Kirk, not this your is ship. Tuesday. Yeah, I, I and I love that. I love that. I, I think personally, for start, you know, I like I love Next Generation too. But what really is like drives me in my favorite Star Trek is Kirk being Kirk and the interplay between McCoy, Spock, and Kirk to solve a situation. You know, the way that their minds operate together to do it you know i mean you see it I, I mean you see it in this episode except for mccoy who's too emotional that he's completely drawn into the energy creatures web but kirk and spock start getting you know start bouncing it off each other up on the bridge and before you know it they have sort of figured you know they're out looking for the creature you know they know what's going on right. and they're looking for the creature 
more than anything, though, this was just fun at times. I mean, when you had everyone fighting with swords in in the in the lounge, and the fight breaks out into the hallway, mm-hmm. I was just like, I really wanted like uh, like pirate music to be playing that was actually one of my nitpicks for this episode is I thought the music could be better it was just um, it was just cut and paste of old you know of their stock music for the most part yeah and but they didn't always use the best cues I thought some of them were like the light-hearted kind of goofy sounding cues and, and that kind of bugged me a little bit and why whenever matter is converted into anything or converted in any way does it always make that same sound effect that boing why in any 70s show where somebody had super strength did you get that yeah every time they like flex their hand here's another thing like when someone throws thing across you here's another link to these two episodes, the next generation one we're going to do, they're both low-budget ones. They're both ones yes. that are mostly on one, yes. on, a, on, a, on the standard sets and maybe one planet set or something. You know, they don't have... Which... They don't have a lot of special effects or, or sets or anything. It's all character-driven, dialogue-driven, and idea-driven. The, the thing that makes me laugh, though, is that they're both low-budget episodes with omnipotent beings that of can course. conjure anything. <laughs> so it's just like, well, wow. that just, that, that's, that's the easiest special effect of all. You just turn the camera off and then walk whatever you need in there and walk it back. <laughs> but still, <laughs> you, you would think that those would be the episodes you would throw a little cash at, you know? Right. Instead of having the floating disco ball coming in and out of the room and looking at people going, ooh. <laughs> and turning colors. Now, yeah. did they, getting more energy, Captain. Did they do anything with... with that thing with the with the enhanced version did or was it pretty no. much the same little quibbly? Yeah, it was it was quibbly the same. Thing? Yeah. The only enhanced effects were the uh, the external shots and the view screen shots. Everything in, uh, internal was the same. See, I don't even know if I want to see the enhanced ones. Yes, because you do. I kind of want to. Well, I want to yeah, see the originals. Do. I want to see the originals first, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, okay, since you're yeah, since you're watching them for the first time, but the the great thing about the enhanced ones is. It's subtle, you know. It's not done. Yeah. It's not done to draw attention to itself or anything. It just sort of smooths things over. And when it's something like that energy creature, they'll leave it alone. You know, there was one where well, they they have to because none of the original prints exist for oh. them to go and do you know rematting and yeah. shit like that. Oh, so. I'm sure. Are you all aware that the Blu-ray has both versions? No. Oh no, I didn't know that. I got the uh, I. Lost my season three DVDs at some point in my life, and I got the Blu-ray of season three for my birthday recently. So that's what I watched this off of was the Blu-ray, and you can watch either one. And in the middle of an effect shot, you can hit the angle button, and they'll you'll change your track, and you can go and rewatch the effect shot in another uh, in the other oh, mode. That's cool. Yeah, and so Blu-ray che- players are getting cheap, so yeah. I may be getting one soon. Well, also when when Kirk destroys the. Uh, the Klingon ship, that enhanced effect was very nice. That was really that, cool. Yeah, that looked really solid. I didn't I go back and look at that again in the original because I just didn't think it would be uh, it's, worth it. It's, yeah. <laughs> I think it was just a flare, if I remember right. I think yeah. it was just a typical light flare. So, yeah, much well, more They never dramatic. did an exploding ship other than just flares and random dust explosions. They, they, never, they, couldn't, they couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't afford to destroy models yeah. is why. 
<laughs> well, I'm very you know, surprised the Klingons took the destruction of their ship so well. I'm very proud of those Klingons being able to make merry when their yeah. ship has just been destroyed by the Enterprise. Well, yeah, but the Enterprise saved them, though. That's yeah, the, that's right. that's true, but still, in Klingon way of thinking, it still might oh, yeah. not really, you know... That sort of half-ass leads into my major nitpick with this episode, and I think it's a doozy. Why in the hell would Kirk tell Kang that, like, you know, nine-tenths of his crew is trapped below decks yeah. in this episode? Why did he tell him that? Well, Because the, the, that, was like, that was like ringing the dinner bell for, okay, come take the ship. Because you, you, know, you, like, you can count yeah, anything no out on the the effects of the creature messing because remember there's a one point where Spock goes you know we can't trust that anything we know right now is real because this thing can obviously affect our memories so it could have affected Kirk's judgment and and had him say that so that it would you know and empower the Klingons a little bit give them a little uh, little morale boost I'll buy that, I guess. I'm sure that's not now, what they meant, but, you know, in my... <laughs> now, I noticed not only... <laughs> well, thanks! Not only did uh, McCoy have a male nurse in this one and, and not um, Nurse Chapel, but I noticed that Majel Barrett wasn't the voice of the computer either. No. It actually sounded a lot like Gary Seven's computer, I thought, <laughs> in this one. Yeah, I thought it was much, much higher pitched than it was. Yeah. I noticed that, too. I was going to actually ask about that, but... Uh... Because I, I didn't know, I keep since I haven't seen so uh, a lot of these, I, I didn't know that Major Barrett was the major voice of the computer. Because I yes. knew she was on Next Gen. Yep. But uh, when I heard that that, that, that kind of incorrect type of computer, I was like, oh, okay, that that just seems like Star Trek to me. So. Yeah, she she was the the voice for the computer, I believe, most of the time. But for some reason in this one, she's not. I, I'd swear that this is the same. Um, woman that they used to voice Gary Seven's computer, but I, I I haven't looked it up or anything, so I could be wrong. But it's it's definitely not Major Barrett. Now we were talking about Scotty earlier. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me about the third season is in the earlier episodes he gets this like longer hair slicked back thing going on, and I was glad that this was not one of those episodes. He's showing starting to show some gray here, but I don't know. He does not look like Scotty if he has the longer hair greaser thing the going shemp. on. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he looks good here. He looked like Scotty here. He doesn't look like Scotty there. Well, what's funny is um, Scott's Uncle Randy, when his hair would get, like, greasy, would get the Scotty <laughs> look to his Yeah, hair. we used to call it that, too. <laughs> my, uh, my favorite moment in this episode, because, again, I now get Kirk was when Kirk just basically, you know, tells the Klingon captain what's what. He tells Kang, you know, this is what's going on. Oh, and by the way, bam! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's I'm something like, I owe you, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, and that I was been waiting for that moment and waiting for that moment, and when it came, it did not disappoint. I was very, very <laughs> pleased with that. I was like, yeah, knock him on his ass! <laughs> you had some good mythology points being brought into this episode where Mara talks about the... Um, the propaganda that Klingon society spreads about the Federation. Yeah, with I the was going to ask about and, that too. The death camps and all that. What the hell was that all about? They actually, there's a novel that follows up on some of that idea. Um, I was because um, there were several original series novels that I've read from the 80s, and 
was browsing covers. I think the one that it is is called Pawns and Symbols. It's by Majlis Larson. Uh, Kirk visits either the Klingon homeworld or one of its imperial planets, and you get to see a lot of the the way the propaganda affects the population. There's like slave labor driven lifestyles there. Uh, and you get and Kang and Mara are both in that book. It's sort of a follow up to what you see here. It was hmm. I don't remember the story itself was good, but the insight and the Klingon lifestyle was good. Hmm. I don't think I've read that one. It's one of the early ones, but it came out before Next Generation started. We'll get some we'll get some more of this in the DC comic when we get to it too. A little insight oh, yeah. into some of the Klingon uh I like the uh, the nice I don't know what you would call it symmetry or whatever the part where uh, Kang shuts off life support to the bridge and he delivers that line something about you will die in the icy cold of space or something to that effect and it's just the way he says the line and then knowing that many 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 years later he would be Mr. Freeze on Batman the Animated Series so- important I must discuss with you. I have captured your engineering section. Now control the ship's power and life support systems. I have deprived all areas except our own. We'll die of suffocation in the icy cold of space. Fifteen years today, darling. Did you think I would forget... How could I? The day we met was the happiest day of my life. A gift for you. I found it in the snow. Fragile beauty clinging to life in this frozen wasteland. Like you, Nora. That's what, <laughs> that was the familiar part of that. Okay, I was like, who is this dude? Why do I see, feel like I know who he is? And you're absolutely... Oh, thank you, Scott. Yep. I'm dead serious. I was just like, who the hell is this guy? He sounds so familiar. Well, here's a, <laughs> here's a Kang reference that Scott won't get because he still steadfastly refuses to watch The Simpsons. But Kang, you know, you got Kang and Kodos. Yeah, those the creatures. Simpsons. Yeah, it's the two yeah. monsters on the treehouses of horror. And you know those are lifted He's got a board with a nail in it. <laughs> Yeah, those are both straight Star Trek references. <laughs> well, that's all I've got on this one. Anybody else got anything? No, I'm about mm, nope. tapped. What do what we uh, overall though? What do we think of this one? Because I gotta admit, this one here, I'm like meh. You know, I don't, I don't hate it or anything, but it's far from one of my favorites. I, I think that this one's got a lot of cheese factor to it, and not necessarily good cheese factor to it. I've, I'm different there because this is one I remember being like eh on it but now watching it again I love it I love I'm starting to love the low budget ones that just depend on dialogue and character development and you know just generally ideas rather than than set pieces or anything like that so I I enjoyed the hell out of it I was I was having fun although I was pleasantly surprised. It was one of those ones I remember being like, "Ah, eh, when it would come on," and sort of half pay attention to it. But I think it's a it's it's a worthwhile episode. It it contributes to the Star Trek mythology. 
Um, I think that Kang and Kor are the two premier Klingon captains of the original series. Koloth is often lumped in there, but he's played by Trelane, and it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I thought he was excellent when he came back on DS9. I thought yes. they, they kind of redeemed his character, but you're absolutely right, because I see him very much as kind of the prissy uh, Trelane. Yeah, effeminate, uh, like he was as Trelane. Yeah, so absolutely. I, yeah, I had the exact same problem all my life with with him playing a Klingon is I I just couldn't get past. Well, this is Trelane dressed well, up as a Klingon. Well, even an effeminate Klingon would still be pretty manly. <laughs> I mean, probably only another Klingon I'll, would I'll be leave able that to, to you to find only out. Only another dude. Klingon would probably be able to go like, "What's the, that? That guy's you know that um, Konam's a little uh, light in the loafers, don't you think? <laughs> I don't know. I'm human. I you guys are all the same to me. He seems like a badass to me. I don't know. I can't tell any of you, any of you apart. Yeah. Um, if you wipe some me, of that grease off your face, maybe I'd. For me, since I haven't seen a lot of these, I, I really enjoyed the hell out of this episode. So I'll be interested to revisit it after I've seen like the series as a whole to see how I feel about it because uh-huh. I'm still in that honeymoon phase with original series where I'm just kind of excited about everything I'm watching, so I don't really have that jaded sensibilities coming in because I, I just don't know any better, if that's the proper way to say that. But I enjoyed it. I mean, I saw where it was, you know, some of the goofier aspects to it, and I kind of got sick of the glowing orb. I have the ball of light! <laughs> but, uh, it just keeps showing up everywhere. Uh-huh. But I really got into the characters. I got into uh, Kang. I got into Mara. And, you know, it was great seeing the Chekhov. Yeah, and Chekhov. Well, I actually didn't like Chekhov in this episode. But that's just... Yeah, he was a big pain in the ass in this one. Yeah. <laughs> For everybody. It could only mean one thing. Greetings, Captain. Spock! I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. The vacation is over. Now, the crew of the Starship Enterprise... Enterprise, are you ready? ...is taking adventure where it has never gone before. What are you standing around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? The mind of a madman. Hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Mr. Solo, full ahead. Through the center of the galaxy. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. To the final frontier. Fascinating. How often have you done this? Actually, it's my first attempt. Fire the rockets! You never cease to amaze me. Nor I myself. This is the boldest trek of all. Warp speed now. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider 
which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers, and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. Well, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening. All over this land, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters, all over this land. Well, if I had a bell, I'd ring it in the morning, I'd ring it in the evening. All over this land, I'd ring out danger, I'd ring out a warning, I'd ring out love between my brothers and my sisters, all over this land. Well, if I had a song, I'd sing it in the morning, I'd sing it in the evening. All over this land, I'd sing out danger, I'd sing out a warning, I'd sing out love between my brothers and my sisters, all over this land. Well, I have a hammer, and I have a bell, and I have a song. A song to sing all over this land. It's the hammer of justice. It's the bell of freedom. And the song is the song of love. Love between all of my brothers. And love between all of my sisters. All over this land. I wanted to pose a Star Trek question that I hope you guys didn't talk about on your Star Trek The Motion Picture episode. I, ho- I, I can't remember the whole thing because it was so epic and long. Uh, very good, though, which made me why I watched the movie again. Um, I was sitting here having a cup of coffee with a friend, and he brought up a point that um, was kind of interesting to me because I'd never really thought about it before, is that Star Trek The Motion Picture which is a movie about the reunion of the original cast 
is centered on two characters we've never encountered before. Well, because I think there was a TV show envisioned. You mean the Decker Ilya relationship? Yes, they were. You know, when you really think about the folk. I'm folk sorry, the, the Riker Troy relationship. <laughs> when you really think about the focal point of that movie, it, it's it's about Commander Decker and Ilya. When it, you know, the like like all the the light is being shined on the original cast, but the crux of the plot involves these two people. Those two melding in that and the the quote unquote consummation of their relationship. <laughs> and, and he said that, and I was like, God, you're actually right. And I just wanted to get y'all's opinions on that. Well, I know that Ilea had a great big part. To, she was going to be a regular on the Phase Two series. I don't know if that's Drove Decker or not. Well, that's they that's had, the thing. I think when the movie got made, that a lot of ideas from Phase Two got thrown into it, and um, just sort of. So, so, I mean, obviously they discarded those two. They, they discarded that idea because those two characters are are gone. But they're given a a big send off too. So, you know, they if if it had been a TV show, you might have been seeing them week to week. You know, and I think they will also when they were doing phase two, they were also, you know, dealing with Leonard Nimoy wasn't going to be there. So they were, you know, planning all these other characters, you know, to, yeah. To Have y'all seen the footage? There is the phase two screen test footage of Ilya and commander Jean, or however you pronounce that. Zahn. Yeah. Yeah. The Vulcan. Yeah. I, I might've, I think I've seen the Zahn footage. I haven't seen Ilya. There, there's some footage of her getting her hair shaved off. Because she had this beautiful black raven hair, and they shaved it all off. And then there's a there is a shot of her posing in a '60s style green tunic skirt uniform that I've seen. I just remember it was a big deal that she was completely bald. That it was very strange to see a completely bald woman in, as a character in a movie. What do you think, Scott? I don't know. I, I see where somebody could think so. I, I see where your friend's coming from, but I don't know. I, I see that one very much as a Kirk-Spock story. I see it very much the story of Kirk, you know, struggling to, to come to terms with... Uh, it's almost a What Am I movie, you know? Am I this admiral? You know, or or am I best suited to be, you know, captain of the Enterprise? I think the story plays out much better in Star Trek II. I think it's better refined, but I think that 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 basic story of Kirk finding his way back to the Enterprise that was what they were attempting to do with Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But see, I've I'm prejudiced because I've always seen Star Trek as James T. Kirk's story. Even when it was next gen, I still thought it was James (laughs) T. Kirk's story. And I felt very vindicated in that when in Generations, you know, at the conclusion, which was basically the conclusion of the TV show, in my opinion, Generations kind of put the cap on the TNG series, you know, television series. You know, because that was a common complaint too that a lot of people had was that it played very much like a you know the movie of the week rather than a full fledged motion picture. You know, here you finally had Kirk come in and and save Picard's ass. <laughs> so I felt very vindicated in that. 
but looking at it from you know the perspective of its James T. Kirk story, that, that I feel that way with with the motion picture. It's one of the reasons I like it so much because I think Kirk never looked better than he looks in the motion picture. But also, I see it very much as Spock's story. You know, it's Spock coming to terms finally with his warring halves. You know, it starts out the movie where he fails to extinguish the Vulcan half, and by the end of the movie, he's kind of come to terms with things. He realizes that, you know, being completely logical, 100% Vulcan, yeah, that'd kind of suck. You know, because he saw it firsthand with V'ger and realized V'ger was incomplete. And that sets the stage likewise for him. By the time we see him in Star Trek II, he's comfortable in his own skin for the very first time in his whole life. And I like that. So while I really like Decker a lot, never much cared for Ilea. And I would argue that, it, that it's Ilea's story at all because, I mean, you know, halfway through the movie, she's dead and turned into a robot. So I, I kind of, I think that invalidates her, it being her story. But Decker... I would say I could see it possibly being his story if he'd stuck around. But him basically playing redshirt at the end of the movie and sacrificing himself so Kirk and everybody else can get away, then I think it kind of puts the kibosh on it truly being his story either. I, I think it's really ultimately the story of Kirk, Spock, and you might even argue McCoy, of them, you know, getting back together. You know, and, and being in place again as as you know the the trifecta on the Enterprise. So, well, McCoy yeah. McCoy doesn't have I think much of a story arc because I don't think he's really changed a lot. I think he's probably the actually the most comfortable in his own skin of all of them at any time. You know, Kirk's having right. his his midlife crisis, but guys like Kirk have those, and Spock is ha- has a major identity crisis, being half Vulcan half human and and McCoy just comes back into this as grumpy old McCoy and is the foil right with the, with the two of them I just always when I was a kid I always remembered being very disappointed with the way Spock showed up because he was so Vulcan and it seemed so weird to me at the time because I didn't think about it you know and think well he's just way more Vulcan right now you know and it wasn't until the end of the movie that I was starting to feel like oh this is the Spock I know you know Right, but that was you know watching it at eleven years old or however old I was, ten years old when when it came out. I don't know. I don't know if I disagree with his his, his friend's opinion, but I, I would just, say that even, even after Ilya leaves, that the relationship between Ilya and Decker is still pretty center stage. But anyways, and that's one to grow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess that leads us into the comic portion of the show, and we're going to take a look at DC Comics Star Trek number 14. This is the May 1985 issue. Cover on this one by Tom Sutton and Rick Magyar. And it it shows the changed Spocks, both the Mirror Spock and the regular Spock, and Conan are uh, before the Klingon Empire and the... uh, the Klingon, Klingon emperors like giving them a dressing down. It's a pretty cool cover on this one. The uh, credits on this one, it's written by Mike W. Barr, art by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. Original cover price, 75 cents. And this is chapter six of the New Frontiers storyline entitled Behind Enemy Lines. 
So as we start this one, the jig is up. Kirk and crew, disguised as their evil counterparts in the mirror universe, have been found out, and the Imperial fleet turns on them, intent on destroying the USS Excelsior. Unable to flee back to their home dimension, Kirk launches his backup plan. He beams both Spocks and Konam, the pussified Klingon, to the cloaked and invisible Klingon bird of prey as the Excelsior takes a severe pounding. Aided by his men aboard the Klingon ship, Kirk seizes a window of opportunity and flees the battle as the Spocks set course for the Klingon homeworld. Meanwhile, Kirk, Savick, Chekhov, Bearclaw, and the Mirror Universe uh, David Marcus beam down to the prison world of Gamma Trianguli 12 and rescue a scientist being held by the Empire as a political prisoner. On the Klingon homeworld, the trio in the Bird of Prey are met with suspicion and disbelief at their wild story of having come from another universe and seeking Klingon assistance to defeat the Empire. So, in desperation, Konam mans up and endures an excruciating session in the Mind Sifter to prove the truth of their tale, and the Klingon Emperor appears to be quite impressed. Back on the Excelsior, having accomplished their rescue, Kirk swears that the Empire will be defeated. Next issue is entitled Victory. And that's <laughs> Victory. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this issue. I don't so... know why that cracks me up, but that cracks me up, man. <laughs> So going around the, the, the room, the good guy—they're going to win. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, what did we think of this one? Well, the the first thing I want to say about this is the cover, and I have two thoughts on the cover. One, it looks like both Spock's got caught playing with themselves, and that's why they're in chains. They they got this look of shame on their faces. <laughs> but all, but also, I look at the Klingon faces floating around them, and all I hear is guilty. Is this a sequel to that old Star Trek book, Spock Must Die, too? It's sort of the same. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That had two Spocks on the cover as well. Yeah, I forgot about that. Intentional reference, yeah. Loved the living hell out of this issue. I really did. It was wall-to-wall action. There was a little bit of intrigue of them sneaking into the prison planet. And just everything about it just made me smile, and I was really excited. My only quibble, and I really hate to say this because he's not a bad artist, is that the art was really stiff in this issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that was just me or... I, no. I, mean, uh-uh. I mean, the space battles were pretty epic. Uh, I wish they would stop using the color blue because it, it kind of makes it hard to distinguish all the ships from each other. But it seems like if the art had been just a little bit more lively, it would have been like a perfect issue. Chris and I, uh, we had discussed this a while back in one of the other Star Trek Monthly Mondays. I'm heavily in favor of these issues being recolored because I think that the... I know it's not quite day glow, but just to pick on it, I like to call it day glow colors. I think the day glow colors, especially of the space scenes, detract. I really do. And I agree with you. Blue is used much too much. If it, if it had been a stark black with stars, star field behind the ships, I think it would really make the art pop that much more on the space battles. But every space battle is blue, or every space scene is blue, and it it is very... Uh, 
very distracting. Normally, Tom Sutton, I think he does a bang-up job on the space scenes, and then his character moments are kind of wonky at best. This issue, though, I see it completely the other way around. I think the space stuff is very wonky in this. I really... I know what he was going for with the um, Empire, the Imperial fleet being ships of all different configurations, but it doesn't quite work for me. They they look odd. And so I think the ships look funny in this one, but the people look really good. So it's it's kind of completely ass backwards in this particular issue. There were a couple of ship shots that I really liked. I have a hard time judging my overall impression of this issue because I read this after having read the other 13. I have some specific notes on this issue, but just overall, this Mirror Universe storyline is impressing me to no end. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as we get done here, I'm going to read the next few chapters just to see where it goes. But <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as the, the art being stiff or lively, that's Savick on page three. There's all kinds of um, lively, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, her hair's a little more uh, free and easy in this this issue. Oh, yeah, she has hair, noticed. doesn't she? I'm sorry, I was staring down her... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so was I. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, sorry. I, my, I was my like pawn, hey, my, baby. Yeah, my, my, my palm My hair's up here. Up here. <laughs> she has the twins out to play. Yes. I'm liking that very much, very much. Well, uh, let's see. How do we want to work this? Because I, I figure everybody's got notes. We just want to go round robin on our notes here, fellas? Probably be the best way to do it. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's start out with uh, – you haven't said too much this time, uh, Mike. So go ahead and run with your notes, buddy. Um, really like the Mirror Universe in general. And this story, as I've been listening to you guys talk about it, because this is actually the first issue I've read, but because you guys do such a great job of synopsizing them, I know I knew what was going on, so I didn't feel lost. But as a first, even if this was the issue that I jumped in on, while I might have been lost, enough action was in there to make it exciting enough for me to not only want to read the previous issues, but find out how everything ends. Uh, yet yeah, really surprised to see Savick's uh, cleavage. Um, doesn't really look like Kirstie Alley, but, you know, in the end, that's not really a bad thing considering what she's turned into. Uh, every time One of the I tragedies hear, of the uh, feminine side of the race. Yeah, I just uh, every time I, I hear her name, I hear, Hree! So, um... Frau Bluka! I really liked them pulling kind of a Star Wars by dressing up as stormtroopers to sneak into the Death Star to free the prisoner. Oh, that's a good analogy. Yes. I, I dug so. the hell out of that because I, I, I mean, it wasn't as cool as uh, we're all fine here. Everything's fine. How are you? <laughs> that was a boring conversation anyways. Um, and I really liked, as everything went on, I liked seeing David because as you guys were like saying last week, it's kind of cool to see him back and seeing Kirk trying to have like a real relationship and being all happy that he's alive. But what I really liked is they free this scientist and the first thing he does is try to sacrifice himself for the group. Mm-hmm. And it just it just strikes to the heart of while this isn't the evil universe, it is a universe of great evil. And people are willing to die to defeat the empire. 
and there's just so much Star Wars stuff going on in here. It's really kind of funny. <laughs> um, I liked seeing the two Spocks uh, on the Bird of Prey. Uh, Konam looks Amish. Uh, I don't know if he always looked <laughs> Amish, but he looks really Amish. No. But, I, but I have to say, I loved the scene that took place on the Klingon homeworld. Because one, the iconography was kind of awesome. This is where the art was was better for me in this issue. But two, you know, this guy, this this king, for lack of a better term, wants to kill these people. Doesn't want to listen to a thing they have to say. And it's Konob that basically, th- you know, throws the Hail Mary pass and gets them to um, delay the executions. And when everything comes out and Spock basically uses this guy's ego against him. It's like, you're going to further your rule, further our rule. And they just look at each other. <laughs> and I, estimate. Uh, um, I, I just love that the two Spocks are working together. It's kind of neat. And I, I like the fact that one has the Fu Manchu because it would get really freaking annoying after a while. If they looked the same, uh, <laughs> I'm glad they kept the goatee thing going. Uh, another thing I really liked because I always liked the that costume is I love seeing Scotty in his outfit from the from the films because I always thought that was an interesting thing for engineering to wear it completely separates them from the rest of the crew and mm-hmm. basically makes it look like they are working in a hazardous area instead of just wearing what everybody else wears so I, I liked seeing that in the book and it just had a really exciting ending. Just a really cool, you know. Kirk's like, we're gonna go fucking kill everybody, and this this shit's over, and that just made me really excited and made me really really want to read the next issue. Uh, my final two notes are: I really want to see how much these Warlord action figures go on eBay, because <laughs> I remember them being like the cheap shit you found at Kmart. Yeah, but I'm nostalgic for them at the same time. So, <laughs> and two, uh, T M Maple who was a prolific letter hack through most of the late 70s and 80s, uh, has a letter in here as Mirror Maple. Yeah. Uh, yeah basically saying it's, it's great seeing the Empire because, you know, the, the, the regular universe Enterprise are full of, uh, full of pussies who don't want to do anything. So it's nice to see that, that they have brought back the one true Star Trek universe. I got a really big kick out of that. I love that letter hacks were sort of a early version of like internet people, you know, that would. Well, TM Maple, I'm just fascinated by his history in general because he was the Mad Maple for a long time, right? And then, and then Jim Shooter handed down the edict that you had to have names; it couldn't be uh, uh, pseudonyms. pseudonyms writing in. So he just said TM Maple. And in an issue of Amazing Heroes in the letter section, they actually revealed his real identity. He has since passed on, from what I understand, which makes me, yeah. makes me sad every time I read a letter. Because he always had the most insightful things to say. And Chris is right. If, if, if the internet was as prolific and omnipresent as it is now, back in the 70s and 80s, he would have had like the most popular blog. Yeah, he'd be like Perez Hilton or something like that, you know? Oh, don't talk about that. <laughs> I fucking hate him, and I hope he goes He's to done. He's done. And I'm glad about He's that. I know that's nothing minutes. to do with Star Trek, but... That fucker needed to go down anyways. So I have no idea who you guys are yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Tell us how you really feel as well. Pop culture blip. 
blogger. He's one of these people that would break news about celebrities, and Perez Hilton was like the dumbest <laughs> pseudonym ever. Gossip. But he, yeah, he was a he was a gossip whore, and the fucker decided to post upskirt pictures of Miley Cyrus. Yeah, too bad she's underage. Yeah, but still, when when that news broke, I I like did a little dance of joy because uh, I fucking hate that whole mindset, anyways. But bringing it back to this. Uh, last thing I'm going to say, love the 50th anniversary logo in my, uh, what should be the barcode box on the cover, but, uh, I've got a direct, uh, edition comic. So it says 1935, 1985, 50 with the DC bullet. And that just makes me smile. Yeah. I've got the barcode. Ah. one. <laughs> John? Uh, Tor had the, uh, the 50 on his copy. Um, yeah, I have not heard y'all's commentaries yet on the previous issues because I'm about a year behind in my two true freaks listening. So I, uh, I'm re I read all these so I could be prepared for today, but I'm not sure what all has been said before. Well, no, that's good. So, You're a clean slate. I am a clean slate. I'm virginal to this whole thing. Please be gentle. Uh, so we have, um, I was, I was going to ask you before we start by this issue, the, the two Spocks. Uh, the, initially the, the evil Spock was evil and he was all about, you know, yay empire, boo, you know, niceness. And then they have the mind meld and all of a sudden he's cool with this whole thing. Did that strike anyone else as a little bit too easy of a, of a transition for him? Or is that just me? It didn't me just because he never really seen, he seemed the closest one of, all of the uh, the Enterprise crew members, the the one that was closest to the regular universe versions, he he never really seemed to me like he really was pro Empire and and bloodthirsty and all that. He like was just the in a di- he wasn't evil. He was just in a different position where it was more logical for him to side with e- evil. But if the others, I yeah. I take it I took it as with a Vulcan, if you. It, once you convince them of something logically, that's that. That the the point's been made, and they'll start acting. You know, that's that's. You know, I can see that. You know, I, guess I, I mean, it, it, he he was written more uh, more fierce in the um, in the first couple issues yes. of this story than he was in the in the. That's old. true. Yeah. But um, no, I uh, I like this this issue a whole lot, and I like where the story is going. Um, just a couple of notes I put down along the way. I think it's funny. Um, on page seven, they're talking about how the inertial dampeners are going to take care of some of the acceleration, but not all. So they better hold on to something. And it's like when you have that much of a deceleration or an acceleration, if the dampers are going to work enough that you don't get killed, <laughs> then they're taking care of like 99% of the acceleration right. and they're just like a hair off. So I think it's really funny. They always like, you know, watch out. The dampeners aren't working right. And really, <laughs> um, I also thought it was kind of odd that they came to gamma trianguli system. We're here on planet number 12. For some reason, um, the apple happened on gamma trianguli six, which is in the same star system, but not the same planet. So I, I, I know they probably liked giving a nod back to the planets used in the original series, but, I thought it was weird we didn't just go back to the same one. <laughs> the um, I actually, even though the blue background was kind of uh, muddling, I actually did like a lot of the ship designs in this issue, 
especially when the Klingon battlecruiser first shows up on page 15. Uh, you get a really nice bird of prey drawing at the top of that page and a really nice battlecruiser drawing in the middle of the page. Uh, I was pretty impressed by that. Um, Mike said he liked the iconography and the Klingon homeworld. I thought the crazy posters were kind of weird. Uh, like they've got the the Klingon head that's all sparkly and bubbly around him, and then the the raised fist with more sparkles and bubbles. And I wasn't entirely sure what motif they were going for there, but uh, but the Klingon Emperor was was fun to read because yeah, maybe it's like a like, Klingon version of like a like a Seven Up commercial or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like the Coke poster right. of the Klingon world. <laughs> it's like it's yeah, it's basically like. You know, it translates into the delicious blood of your enemies or something like that. <laughs> okay. Defeated or something, you know. Um, Refresh yourself in the blood of your enemies. The, <laughs> now the with a hint of lime. Right, right. <laughs> Within your lime blood, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> That'd be so tasty, too. The one thing that struck me about this issue is that the um, the human race seems to be pretty much the same as our human race. It's just that they've been driven to brutality and savagery because of the Romulan war and everything else, whereas opposed to... We can't compare this to later episodes because the later episodes didn't exist at this point, but the later incarnation of the Mirror Universe, humans are pretty much savage, brutal people that will do what it takes to get by in life. They're They're kind of like Klingons. Yeah, I mean they're they're enslaved when you get to the Deep Space Nine episodes, uh, but they're okay. still, but they're still you know fierce and Klingony, um, or at least somewhat. So I, just, I thought it was an interesting, different take on the whole thing. But uh, but yeah, good issue, good chapter, and, and an overall great story. And I can't wait to see what happens next. No, you got Chris. You remember last time, Scott? I loved the last issue of this. Uh-huh. And this one I didn't like as much as the last one, but that but that doesn't mean that I didn't think it was awesome. I, I'm I'm loving this story arc. It's it's just great. Um, a Konam finally comes in handy for something. There's actually a need for you know a reason to use him. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew somebody was going to bring that up that that Konam finally redeems himself. <laughs> Or at least, at least, just has a reason for existing, other than to just be sort of a wimp. And uh, and it was funny because we were talking about like maybe you know what what a feminine Klingon would be to a Klingon, and that would probably be Konam. But no, they don't seem to really be like, "What is your problem, man?" You know, well, except that he's in Federation garb and all that. Well, they're but, not privy to his backstory either right. of, of having pussied out from the you know from right. his whole universe's empire to go you know yeah, be a so pacifist. Get, but it seems like I mean when we watch him interacting with the crew, I mean to us as human observers, we we I mean we've been calling him Konam the Pussified Klingon ever since he showed up. So you'd think the other Klingons would would see him. It's like an idiocracy when the main character opens his mouth and they're just like, "Whoa, dude! <laughs> what are you, dude? What's wrong with you?" You know. But um, what I liked is uh, David's still alive in this. I kept thinking they were going to kill him off because to keep oh, the symmetry. Oh, there's still a chapter left. Oh yeah, yet. it's still going. 
But I mean, he, David had his chance where he was like trying to talk Kirk into sac. You know, he's like, you know, I could sacrifice myself. And Kirk and notice he call he's call he still calls him Admiral Kirk though he keeps referring right. to him as Admiral Kirk, so he's not really acknowledging him as his fa- well technically he isn't his father, but um, at least he doesn't call him uncle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then talk about what it'd be like to go off and you know mate with him, Uncle Jim. <laughs> I want you to show me around the Enterprise because this Captain Kirk is much better than the Captain Kirk from my right. There's something else you don't. <laughs> yeah, there's something else you don't know about the Mirror Universe as far as that goes. Everyone's got the gays, <laughs> except for the gay people who've got the straights. <laughs> it's wacky. <laughs> we're going. We're going to the stadium right now to watch Liberace battle Michael Jackson, and the you know they're the. Two greatest warriors we've ever had. Anyway. (laughs) But yeah, I love, I'm loving this mirror universe stuff. The art's a little wonky, but I'm so used to it now that, um, I think this one's no, really no better or worse than the other ones. As far as the art go, I did. I kind of enjoyed, except for the colors, like you mentioned, Scott, the big two page layout of, of all the ships. That was nice, nice little two page spread, you know, right at the beginning. Um, yeah, I'm, this is my favorite part so far of all the DC Star Trek we've read. I, I love, I love how they – I don't know if they just felt free to do it or were able to do it or talked to Paramount about it. But the, I like the fact that Spock is you know, back as a functioning character. You know, uh, um, you know, Star Trek III be damned you know, or what or what's happens between – you know, is whatever's going to happen in Star Trek IV be damned I guess I should say. Well, there was a nice or thing in should, the Or it can go to the or- devil. <laughs> there was a nice thing in the letters page uh, just before they get into the letters that talks about that uh, Mike W. Barr, the writer, had a little powwow with Harv Bennett, who was you know beginning work on Star uh, Trek. They had a little meeting of the minds where they you know basically talked you know and praised each other's work and everything, and uh, and uh, you, you kind of get the feeling by the article that maybe Harv was was trying to steer him in in certain directions or give him guidance or whatever. You know, so that hopefully, you know, whatever they wrote in this interim period would end up matching up with uh, with Star Trek Four. Mm-hmm. I'm still curious how that's going to play out because I just don't remember. I don't even remember if I was honestly still reading the the title at the time that Star Trek Four came out. I think I was, but if I was, I just don't remember how this ends up meshing up. So that'll be that'll be curious to see when we get there because I'm digging this. I really like this interim period. I don't you know. know. For the life of me, why I wasn't buying these when we were when these were coming out when I was buying comics because I just can't imagine why I wasn't buying these. I have I can't remember. Now I uh, I skipped over <laughs> the Star Trek three adaptation as I was reading through these. In the comic version, are there references to other continuity stuff they've been doing in the comics, or is it pretty much just sticking to the movie? Straight up movie adaption adaptation it's pretty much yeah there there was one or two little bonus scenes but they didn't amount to much i mean the the novelization gives us quite a bit more stuff as i recall yeah i'm a big fan of the vonda mcintyre novels of two three and four 
Yeah, but see that that ends up contradicting some of the stuff that that Mike Barr wrote, um, you know, during this run as well. So, but yeah, he didn't he didn't use any of her um, little uh, you know DVD extras, if you will. You know, he he pretty much used his own. But off the top of my head, I can't remember what they were. But there was only one or two of them, and they didn't really amount to much. It's pretty much the movie. Now, one thing I did notice that I thought was a nod to the novels is there is an earlier issue where Sulu's, uh, you know, internal monologuing about how he was up for his own command before yes. all this shit went down. And mm-hmm. I thought that wasn't referenced in the movies. I thought it was a nod to the Vonda McIntyre stuff, or maybe it was a, a scene that got dropped on the uh, editing floor. I don't know. I think I took- it was part of the original one of the scripts somewhere along the way of Star Trek Two. And I don't know if it just ended up getting lost, you know, or cut or whatever. But I, it seems to me I've heard that story before that 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 was going to be one of the many, you know, subplots of Star Trek Two, and I think it got just kind of left behind somewhere. And, and I don't know that it even ever got filmed, but that may be where he drew that from. I had a couple quick notes on this one. Um, like Chris, I liked this chapter a lot. I liked it because it was a lot of action. It made the synopsis nice and fast because you didn't have a whole lot of he sh- he said, she said. You had just a whole lot of, okay, let's shoot this up. Let's go here. Let's do this. Yep. Let's do that. And I really liked that. It made the synopsis very, very easy to write. Um, however, as much as I like the action and all, um, this so far was one of the more nitpicky worthy chapters of this. Cause there are a lot of things that happen in there that I kind of had a little bit of problems with. But, uh, before I get into that on page three, I really like where, uh, where they realize that they're, they're getting shot up pretty bad. And Kirk turns to Savick and he says, uh, Savick, we're over our heads. Get us out of here. That's almost exactly the same line that Savick says right in the beginning of star Trek two, when she realizes that, uh, you know the the Klingon birds are, or excuse me the Klingon battle cruisers are coming at her during the Kobayashi Maru. She says we're in over our heads, get us out of here. So I really like that. I don't know if it was an intentional nod, but I just happened to catch it. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you were saying. I was looking at her cleavage again. What was that? <laughs> now, hot. I don't know. Tell, tell you guys can judge if you think this is too much of a nitpick, but. Maybe you could chalk it up and no prize it to the fact that the Excelsior is a much bigger, much more advanced prototype than any of the ships that it's fighting against. But dropping shields in the middle of a battle for five seconds. Yeah, really not a good plan. And I would tend to think that, you know, no matter how big and advanced this ship is that completely dropping the shields would you know when it's under a, a barrage by all of these other ships that that would yeah. be a fatal move but anyway no no i think I, you're right it's surrounded by guns that right. are constantly shooting at it it's not like we're facing off one-on-one and maybe we can get something done before you know captain cockless over there manages to pull off a shot but right. no they're surrounded by a bunch of people here well, they're damn lucky, too, you know, and I'm surprised somebody didn't think of this before they dropped the shields of what if they dropped the shields and before they could get them back up, there was a well-placed shot that knocked out their ability to bring them back up. You know, they would have left themselves completely defenseless and, and probably been destroyed pretty quick after that, too. So Kirk's a risk taker. I guess, but that's quite the risk to take, you know, because not only is, you know, it's not Kirk's just his own life. Taker. You know, yeah. on the line, it's his ship and, you know, 
his universe, arguably. So yeah, the one not his ship as much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the one nitpick I cannot forgive for this issue, though, because I can actually hear Scotty's voice in my mind. Granted, it's from a later movie, but still. But a prey cannot fire when she's cloaked. And that was a big part of this issue was he beams the two Spocks and Konam over to the cloaked bird of prey. But then the, the cloaked bird of prey actually helps them out by shooting up some of the ships that are attacking the Excelsior. But it never decloaks to do this. That's established a lot of times, both in the TV show and it was established in Star Trek Three that the, the, the ships have to decloak before they can fire. So I'm really surprised that, uh, that Mike Barr, I don't know if he just forgot or he didn't know or he just kind of skipped over that fact thinking maybe nobody would notice or what. But it, to me, it just came out as kind of a, a glaring thing that, wow, this bird of prey you know, fires while it's cloaked because that was a major deal of Star Trek six was that, you know, that was a special bird of prey created, you know, that, that could potentially tip the the balance of power that now they had this new ship that, that had this ability and they couldn't see it or detect it. So I don't know. Um, page this is 11. the 10 year earlier prototype, <laughs> I guess. Page 11, uh, panel four. I love this profile shot of Kirk right there because that really looks like William Shatner right there. Yeah. Because I think that that sometimes the uh, the art on Kirk is a little bit wonky. I can see what they're going for, but I don't always think it looks very Shatner-esque. But that picture right there, I think, totally looks like Shatner. I really like that pose. Uh, page 12 last panel i just happened to notice that the artist signed the control panel that's right there on the uh the right hand side of that panel oh, i thought that was yeah. kind of cool page 14 this here again a nitpick but uh all right they they approached the system right and then they stayed back out of sensor range and then when Kirk and his people are down on the planet and they get into some trouble, he calls up to the ship and Sulu says, uh, Admiral, we can't pierce their shield. Shall we come out of cloaking and help you? And when I first read that, I thought, no, wait a minute. Does that mean the Excelsior is cloaking as well? And then I got to thinking, no, they're not cloaked. What they are is they're at the like the extreme edge of sensor range. So... It's just a matter of where he got the terminology a little bit wrong. I think it reads wonky because he should say, you know, should, should we come we, into range? Or, yeah, yeah, should we come out of hiding or, you know, something like that? Or should we come into range? But come out of cloaking doesn't really, it doesn't really work. On page 18, again, and this may be me bringing a little bit of baggage from, from later Star Trek incarnations, but I thought it was odd that the... Uh, Klingon Emperor says, you know, if it turns out that these guys are not telling the truth, prepare three caskets should they fail the test. And I'm thinking, that just, does that seem odd to anybody else? Yeah, I, mean, I would think they would just toss the um, corpses to their pet, to their pets, those lizard things. Yeah, or vaporize. I had the same them. thought. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. That, caskets that are a very human thing. Yeah. See, sometimes I'm not sure if I'm getting too too nitpicky or not. 
Yeah, I just I, I just thought it was kind of what it, would that, would that be anthropomorphic? I guess it would be anthropomorphic. Yeah. Okay. Conan. Suddenly, I like him in this issue because not only does he man up, he but grows a I pair. Think, yeah, I think there's something going on with him. I think that he's secretly a shape changer in disguise. Like maybe he re- replaced the the real Conan. Because if you look, I'll give you guys time to get there. Page 20, fourth panel, he totally shape changes into Jimmy Olsen. (laughs) Jesus Christ. He's in the mindset. It's Jimmy in a Starfleet uniform. He's suddenly a white guy with orange hair. It's Jimmy Olsen. Last thing I got on this one, and I forget what the hell page it's on, but I know it was in here somewhere. There was that great, great ad. Oh, God, what page is it? Oh, here it is. It's between pages 13 and 14. Dead Man Lives. The uh, ad with Neil Adams showing Dead Man standing over his own dead body. I just, I love this ad. And that, uh, I know Chris and I have talked many times about this time that his dad took us to Syracuse for a comic book auction. That was the only thing I bought while I was there was somebody had up for auction all seven issues of that series, and I bought it and absolutely loved it. So I'm going to go Just, out on a limb and mm-hmm. say uh, that as much fun as we have with the ads from the, uh, the 70s uh, on Tales of the JSA, Scott, that... The ads from this era of DC are the most exciting to get you to want to read the books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mean, there were some cool bits from like 78 and 79 when they had like the really great house ads. But this for me, and it's coming from a person who started reading comics around this time. So I'm I'm totally upfront about that. (laughs) But this to me is the best era of in-house ads because everything looks awesome. I mean, and, and I love the fact that at the end of the issue, I got to sit down and read a Meanwhile column by Dick Giordano and see the, the checklist for that week of DC books. I just think it's, it's you know, again, I'm like you, I'm prejudiced because this is when, you know, I was coming up as a kid and, and really, really, really getting into comics, but... Yeah, I, I just think it's simply the most exciting period that DC ever had. They they themselves felt excited about what they were doing and, and the material they were putting out. Yep. And it was infectious. Absolutely, I will agree with that. That's all I got on this issue, and I'm really, really looking forward to, uh, according to that uh, next issue blurb, next issue Wrapping wraps the up. whole thing up. Yeah. <laughs> And I cannot, for the life of me, remember how the thing ends. So I'm really excited. You know, I'm, the big thing for me is I want to see does David live or die because I honestly can't remember. But my bet is going to be that something bad is going to happen to Mirror it's, David. Either he's going to die, or they're going to at least get a dramatic parting scene. You know, where Kirk gets to afterwards gets to reflect on seeing his son alive again. That reminds me. Now, did you think maybe that, uh, oh, you know what? I was going to say, when I started to read this and they were headed toward that planet and they were, they say right up front that they're going to, they're hunting for some political prisoner or something. Yeah. 
my first thought was that they were going after Carol Marcus. And I was going to ask if any of you guys had the same thought, but then I just she remember blown this up. story. Yeah, this story started off with her getting right killed. Right at the very it? beginning, yeah. yeah I By Kirk. I just now remembered that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kirk did it. I forgot. That's how they deal with their ex, ex, exes in this universe, <laughs> I guess. It's not good. That's Jill why. That's why uh, yeah, exactly. And, Good to go uh, there. Well, Kirk never really struck me as like a like an alimony kind of guy. Anyway, that's, you know? that's why. Well, that's why. What's her name is stuck with Evil Kirk so long because oh, I can't remember her name. The the one Marlena? you think Marlena, the one you think is skanky, Scott. She is ten times skanky. I'm telling you, she's skankalicious. If you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Can any of you stay alive? The crew's challenged once again by the dreaded cube. We have offered you a gift beyond all other gifts. Tempting Commander Riker with extraordinary power. Are you strong enough to refuse to use that power? In a game that becomes a deadly confrontation. On Star Trek The Next Generation. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with a man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lame asses. I'm on a tauntaun. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Good evening. Welcome to Two True Freaks. 
I've been practicing my radio voice. Why? I don't fucking know. <laughs> well, anyway, we're back with Star Trek The Next Generation. And um, that was damn sexy, sir. Let me tell I you. I was about to say, my panties just dropped. Yeah, I'm, so. yeah. I've got to, I've got to adjust over here. Hold on a second, guys. <clears throat> okay, I'm good. I've been, I've been uh, taking lessons over the internet from the Barry White School of. <laughs> I was about to of, say the same of, thing. Of uh, panty moistening. <laughs> so, my voice will make your panties moist. Put the kids to bed and turn down the light. It's time for two solid hours of Barry White. <laughs> solid hours. <laughs> That's right. Rock solid hours of Barry White. Anyway. The end of the climax. <laughs> A musical climax so powerful. Anyway. Keep your mind keep your eye on the prize, Honeywell. Keep your eye on the prize. <laughs> it's Star Trek The Next oh, Generation. For this? <laughs> it's Star Trek The Next Generation, and there's a couple prizes in this next episode, which I'll mention when it's my turn, but I'm going to let Scott tell you what this one's all about. I, I've got to know what the prizes are in this one, because... Uh, They're both prizes. Right. They're both prizes for you, too. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, this one, uh, this time around, we are looking at the episode Hide and Q from the first season. This episode originally aired the week of November 23rd, 1987. And, uh, John, you said you had a, a, a trivia fact about that? Yeah, that's going to be the, um, let me do the math again in my head. Yeah, that's the 24th anniversary of the very first Doctor Who episode back in 1963. Um, which also happened to air the day after Kennedy got shot, so they had to re-air it the next week because they got you know swamped by news coverage. But yeah, there oh, you go. Wow. wow. So maybe now Q also, is a time lord. <laughs> you know, I would not be surprised because <laughs> the time lords were just crazy. Yeah. And there needs to be an official Star Trek Doctor Who crossover because I know there was that fanfic one years ago where the TARDIS like pops up on the bridge of Kirk's Enterprise but I, I always wanted there to be like an official crossover John Byrne it's, are you listening it's, yeah it's kind, of, it's kind of odd that you mentioned that Scott because BBC America has recently I guess because Patrick Stewart's involved been airing episodes of Next Gen and they for like a week or so, a week or two were airing these ads uh, showcasing the fact that Saturday nights were going to be Star Trek and Doctor Who and they really tried to make it seem like the two were con- were interacting with each other. They needed to. I want to see those ads. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I've never really watched the show. But I'm like, yeah, I can see those two connecting, and that would be awesome. Doc- Doctor Who is the ultimate cross... He could be the ultimate crossover franchise, because with the TARDIS, literally he can just be in any universe at any time in any place. So there's no right. reason why he couldn't show up in any universe that he wanted to, or you know, or that the writers wanted to. Look up the old Marvel. Um, I think they were Marvel Premiere or something. Doctor Premier Who preview, or preview, something, like that, something yeah. like that. That had Doctor Who, Tom Baker. Those mm-hmm. those are worth finding. I don't think they're that yeah, expensive. He, they're awesome. He, he interacted with Death's Head. Yeah, which puts. Doctor Who not only in the greater Marvel universe but also in the Transformers universe because <laughs> Death's, head, 
because Death's Head had something to do with the Transformers at one point. I had a buddy that was obsessed with Death's Head, so I got to read a lot of those books at one. <laughs> like well, that loves like, it with Star Trek because Marvel had the crossovers with Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation, so it all That's comes right. together. And those are not bad either. I've heard a lot of smack talked about them, but I actually thought that they were pretty good. If you can get Star Trek and the X-Men together, you can get Star Trek and Doctor Who together. That's all I've got to say. Michael Jan Friedman wrote a novel follow-up to the next-gen one, and that was kind of weak. It works much better as a 64-page comic than as a 200-page novel. Well, it doesn't... uh, What bugged me about it was that the, the... it's supposed to be where the comic leads into the book, but the the cliffhanger at the end of the comic, I mean, it goes nowhere. It does not connect to that book at all. I thought the book was like, nah, at best. But it would have been nice if, like, the book picked up from the cliffhanger of the comic, and it, and it just doesn't. It's a completely different adventure that doesn't reference the comic at all, so it's kind of annoying, but... Right. Uh, personally, I'm just... I'm, I'm fascinated by missed opportunities in crossing over franchises like when when franchises are at their absolute peak of popularity looking back on that historically and going how did these two never meet up you know star trek and doctor who or say you know in the in the early 90s batman and the ninja turtles how did that never happen you know stuff like that <laughs> it just fascinates me you know but if you anyway. can have scooby-doo and the fucking globetrotters yeah <laughs> why can't you Scooby-Doo have teamed up with everybody in the 70s man phyllis diller yeah. <laughs> Shit, you yeah. had Peter Parker met the not-ready-for-prime-time players. How did Scooby-Doo and Star Trek never cross over? <clears throat> that would have been awesome. Because uh, Filmation and, Hang- and Hanna-Barbera. Ah, there you go. That would have been awesome, though, if in the in the Filmation Star Trek animated thing that, that they beamed down to a planet and, like, the mystery machine was already there investigating or something. That would have been pretty cool. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, getting into this... Hide and Q. All right, here's the synopsis. Here's the skinny on this one. The meddling and troublesome Q returns just as the Enterprise is racing to help a disaster-struck mining colony. But this time, his target is Riker. The alien creates a bizarre test for the first officer and his away team by sending fanged humanoids in Napoleonic costumes to attack them. Then he tempts Riker with the Q's power and lets him use it to restore Worf and Wesley, who were killed in the skirmish. Kind of wish he hadn't bothered. Riker is worried about the power's influence on him, and when the Enterprise reaches the survivors of the mining disaster, he refuses to help revive a dead girl. Guilt over that leads him to yield to the power, and when Q presses him to grant his friend's wishes, Picard does not object. Sight for LaForge, adulthood for Wesley, a Klingon mate for Worf, humanity for Data. But as Picard has predicted, they all turn down the gifts because of their origin, Q. Riker understands the lesson, and a humiliated Q gets called home by his continuum for losing the bet. Riker's power and the crew's wishes all disappear. And that's a pretty accurate uh, synopsis, I must say. This comes from the Star Trek The Next Generation Companion. So, uh, going around the room, what do we all think of this episode? These first couple of Q episodes, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I feel like Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek as a whole, the, the basic premise is that mankind has improved itself. 
and has gone into a future where it is at peace and the earth is a near paradisical place to live. Whenever you try to extend that more into the future and say that humanity of all the races in the universe has this special capacity to grow and change more so than, you know, Bajorans or Klingons or anyone else, I feel like that builds a racism into the universe that shouldn't be there. And these, this, this Q episode was an example of that. That aside, that aspect of it aside, I thought the rest of it was pretty fun. And aside from Riker's booming voice telling you, hey, this is a soundstage, not a planet. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> I've got just, uh, just a couple of, uh, of quick notes and then a couple um, maybe – I hope they don't turn into diatribes, but they very, very well do so. Oh, go uh, ahead, man. This, this is uh, all about diatribes. <laughs> I enjoy this episode as much as I can enjoy first season episodes because there's always that little bit of wonky feeling about them. You know, I, I was always a big believer in the fact that the show didn't get good until Jordy got a gold uniform and Riker grew a beard. So, you know, seeing a beardless Riker, I'm like, oh, crap, what am I going to be in for? The show hasn't hit puberty. I, I look at <laughs> if, uh, if If I can compare it to another syndicated series, I look at Q for Star Trek is what the character of Amanda was for the Highlander series. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever really watched no. Highlander, got into it. I tried there was to. a there was a character named Amanda that was a female immortal that would show up every once in a while. And basically her function was to sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively fuck with Duncan and make and turn his world upside down. She was kind of a, a goofy character uh, that was always getting into trouble and always involving Duncan McLeod into her hijinks. And I look at Q as kind of the same thing. He was the character that showed up every once in a while and just caused trouble for the sake of kind of having a goofy episode. So I don't hate Q, but I'm not a really big fan of him either. And I don't really understand why he has gotten this exalted place in the start in, in next gen fandom to the point where you're having audiobooks where he and Leonard Nimoy are doing, you know, Spock and Q talking. Because that's gotta be the most boring goddamn conversation on the face of the planet. But having said that, I kinda liked this as a Riker episode because Riker is tempted with godlike power and then, you know, it, it's 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 kind of ham fisted, realizes that it's just not for him. The problems I have with this episode, one, I I really hate, and especially since they go back and forth on it, when they go from the obvious interior set to, hey, we're shooting on location. Like, you know, the episode right before this, I believe, or, or, on, uh, or the two episodes before this, was, you know, the Wesley Crusher fucks up the best shore leave planet ever <laughs> <Yeah>. episode. <laughs> So, but that, but when they were outside, it was obvious they were outside. I'm sure they were at some kind of college in Southern California that had this great campus that stretched out like the planet did. And here, you know, with that green sky and again, the kind of original series styrofoam rocks, it just kind of took me out of the episode a little bit. I mean, I realized they were in a Q world. 
but I have a feeling that Q has a better special effects budget in you know with his <laughs> powers. It looks like the same that. world where they first met the Ferengi. Yes. Yeah, and and it kind of looks like you know if you if different you weather, the, but yeah, if you change the sky from green to red, it's Farpoint. So you got all that going against it. I kind of dug the dog face soldiers. I really did because I thought it was kind of it was like Q was treating everybody like little toy soldiers almost. So you had and not like the crappy ones that used to come in the back of comics, but more of okay, here's your enemy. They're dog faced and oh, their weapons aren't muskets like you guys thought. You're not going to have as easy even a time as this as you thought you were going to. But what I kind of liked was how. Picard was the father figure throughout the entire episode, kind of wanting to, you know, give Riker like a good, like hard smack on the ass, not in a slash fictiony sort of way, but more right. of like, you know, dude, you're acting like a fucking asshole, you know, cool. And when he goes, whatever you say, Jean Luc, I'm just like, oh God, it's like when you call your dad by his first name for the first time, and you know how forced and fake it feels. Yeah, to see if you're going to get your ass kicked or not. Yeah. <laughs> But the you know the crux of this episode was that final scene on the bridge where he gives everybody their their heart's desire, and it was the first time we realized how uh, you know S and M esque Klingon mating is, and and really there's no other way that could go because those people are fucking aggressive in everything they do. I, I I don't have a feeling that they're sitting there reading each other. I mean, even though in a later episode, Worf is telling Wesley about love and how he read, they read poetry Well, to I was going to say they could be the opposite of the Pon Far where they get all gentle and nuzzly. But, uh, yeah. yeah, not, no. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, though, hasn't everyone dated a girl like that at one point or another? What, that one likes it kind of rough? The, not that looked that good. I've I've dated some girls <laughs> with dental wor- work that like that before. Yeah, I was going to say, she looked good until she opened her mouth. Yeah. Man, she's got a jacked up grill. Um, but, you know, Data Data refuses the gift. Everyone in, ends up refusing. But Data even refuses to entertain the notion, which I kind of dug. But I I, I kind of wonder if they want to do, if they want to go back, like, with, uh, with the original series where they're, you know, jazzing up the special effects, that maybe they want to have, like, now the adult Will Wheaton, George Lucas, into this episode. <laughs> Because man, yeah. he 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 got a little more buff than Will we never hoped to be. Really. Yeah, Jordy and, noticed and, that a little too quickly too. Yeah, and, it, and what I'd rather of... if they were going to George Lucas anything though, rather than than put in the adult Will Wheaton, what I'd much rather have them do is, according to the the companion here that I just read that synopsis out of, it has a, a short list of the guest cast. It says, uh, guesting as Wesley at 25, it says William Wallace. And I got to thinking, isn't that the name of the guy from Braveheart? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Freedom! Freedom! <laughs> of course, also putting in do-backs and tauntauns. Just oh, that would be awesome. But, but it kind of got me to thinking. It, it kind of got me to thinking about my feelings about Wesley as a character. Because... Are they strong sexual feelings? No. I like them a little it's more okay. No, wait. Oh, God. Not that there's no, anything wrong with that, Michael. It's too yeah, much it's okay. But seriously, I, you know, Star Trek fandom in general fucking hates Wesley. And, and you know, this show Find really is... My hand is raised, by the way. Yeah, I was yes, about to say, this up. show really is no different in that respect. But because I was basically Wesley's age 
as the show was progressing. I actually had that, you know, I guess the intended effect of is that this is a this is a character that younger kids can kind of glom onto. I, I found him annoying, don't get me wrong. And we would constantly joke about nanites amongst my friends who were into next gen. But I, I kind of like seeing Wesley around because it is the for me as a because I still have that that you know that uh that childlike mentality in a lot of ways, but especially here that it's like okay you know here's a kid running around on the Enterprise ooh I'm a kid I I'd like to run around on the Enterprise so my hatred for Wesley is not as strong uh, and I don't really hate the character but Jesus Christ he was annoying in this episode yep I mean. Oh God! I just—it's like, like Scott said, keep him dead. He was gonna kill me because you know, in some episodes he was kind of cool, and then in some episodes, not so much, really. I'm with Starfleet. We don't lie. I, I think Wesley didn't become a really decent character until he put on an official Star Trek uniform instead. Yeah, of that I was just gonna say we were talking about doing the George Lucas thing. One thing that would help this episode a hundred and ten percent is if they'd somebody'd go back in and digitally take out his uh, gay pride sweater, which actually, that's not my term. That's actually Will, Will Wheaton's term himself for that sweater. And I got, Once I saw this episode again, I was like, oh, my God, that's he's right. That's what he means, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I got what he was talking about, because that book that he wrote is absolutely fucking hysterical. But at the same time, I just enjoyed the shit out of this episode. All the problems I had with it, all the annoying things about it, I just really kind of dug sitting down and watching it again because I haven't literally haven't seen it uh, since it first aired. Wow! Um, and I'm still half-ass paying attention to the series because I kind of fell in and out of the uh, in and out of watching it. Um, and it was just kind of cool because, and I have to say, it was probably because it was one of those you know every Tuesday from 8 a.m. till till 10 p.m. Sci-fi just shows nothing but Next Generation. And I was off like two Tuesdays in a row, and my Tuesdays were consumed with Star Trek The Next Generation. So there was a lot of that kind of coloring my perceptions of the episode. But I just had a ball watching it. I like this one a lot in certain ways when it as it starts. But by the end of it, it, I don't know. There's something about it that that just bugs me. And overall, it's it's not one of my my favorite ones. But uh, I'll quick run through a few notes I had because I've got a couple uh, nitpicks and things like that. Right off the bat, there's the part at the beginning where uh, Picard gets left behind, and he's on the bridge, and he walks trying to go into a couple different doors, and none of them open. And he goes over to the turbo lift and almost runs into it. And then he puts his hand out and the doors won't open. And he actually calls to turbo lift control. And I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? Is there really a turbo? I mean, why is that not computer controlled? You're telling me that they pay some dude to to sit somewhere on the Enterprise and actually run <laughs> the turbo lift tubes or whatever? That's just, I thought that was completely ridiculous. <laughs> And then there's the part where uh, where Tasha gets sent back to the ship and she's in the te- the penalty box, and there's this weird pseudo sexual scene between her and Picard. Yes, and she even says to him, "Oh, if you weren't the captain," and I'm thinking, "What the fuck?" I have are, never are caught they... that line before until this viewing, and I was like, "Oh my god, she who on this ship has she not fucked?" Well, you know. It's. It was just Wesley. all right. They're they're both on duty, 
They're both on the bridge, and she's pretty much admitting that, you know, if you weren't the captain, I'd probably bang you right now. And I'm thinking, all right, that's completely inappropriate, even in our time. But and does he like take fact, a, does he like take a half step closer to her before? Oh, uh, he starts getting creepy. Yeah, he does. He totally does. <laughs> as soon as he gets and creepy, and that's when Q pops in and is like, "Hey, hey!" Bef- before the end of this season, there will be an episode where she reveals that I never had a father, but if I had a father, I hope it would be somebody just like you. And she's talking about Picard. And I'm thinking, okay, that makes this episode that much creepier. That moment between them that much creepier. So, yeah. I think Tasha just has sexual confusion at the wazoo. You know, it it, it occurs to me, though, it it occurs to me that if we were going to do more George Lucasing of this episode, maybe putting the Hanson brothers from Slapshot into the bridge, into the penalty box, (laughs) they'd have Picard walk up to one of them, and I'm watching the fucking show! Oh, that would be awesome. You guys are Hansons. Fucking machine took my quarter. Who are you? Reg Dunlop, the coach. Grab your freaking gear and get going. Machine took machine my quarter. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a terrible... Or, 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 or that guy walking down talking to Picard. Uh, God, he goes into that penalty bag. He had a terrible masturbating problem. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. he, he pries open the, the like meeting room off the bridge, and they're in there playing with their slot cars. <laughs> oh, you cheap son of a bitch. Are you crazy? Those guys are retards. I got a good deal on those boys. The scout said they showed a lot of promise. They brought their fucking toys with them. Well, I'd rather have them playing with their toys than playing with themselves. They're too dumb to play with themselves. Now, they call the, the enemy soldiers, the ones that Q whips up in the French uniforms, they call them animal things. Now, how exactly do you distinguish between an animal thing and an alien? And an alien? Cuz like right. the Tellarites are fucking pigs. So, exactly. you know, I I know what they're going they for. They look like Tellarites. Yeah, they do actually. I mean, when And the Tellarites are some of the founding races of the Federation. They should be able to get used to the whole animal thing. Yeah. So, I mean, if you live in a world that's populated by animal things, that you just call aliens, then I don't it see... It doesn't make yeah, any it's, sense. It's a little yeah. wonky to me. Yeah. All right. As much as I think this episode is a big pile of meh for the most part, it does have one huge redeeming quality. This is quality. probably one of your presents. Yes. And this is where we get to see Wesley Crusher run through with a bayonet. Yep. I love it. I watched it over and over and over again. <laughs> you get to see it. Actually, Jesus it actually God. pierces him. It actually comes through and is all bloody. And I was watching that going, this is just a little present for Scott, but it gets wrestled right away from him. Yeah, it does. So because... Scott wants to see Wesley pierce with something. Oh, never mind. <laughs> with a sharp object. <laughs> yeah, any sharp object will do. Um yeah, do you War? know what your other present was? Oh, no, go ahead. Deanna Troy goes on vacation right at the beginning. <laughs> Written right off well, at the beginning. That's right, that's right. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't even miss her. Do they make any mention of that? They say it right at the beginning because she was probably, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, out of, on vacation or with the actress, you know, and they were just like, Deanna Troy has just been seen safely off to go visit her mother on a recreation, you know, or something. See, that and right they're going to get naked. That should prove a point right there of how completely useless that character is because I didn't catch that 
and I never missed her yep. in this episode. I never so. paid another thought to it after that, after jotting down that note that this was a present to Scott in my notepad, and then I moved on forever. Well, I'm I'm really grateful for that because uh, the next episode is oh Jesus Christ it's it's one of my absolutely most hated episodes of the entire series because it is a Deanna centric story, but uh, we'll get oh, to that. Oh yes, yes. Look at the list. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's, yeah, it's horrible. Um, Worf makes some comments that seem very odd and and kind of well i'll just say odd because you know if you look at it from from a later perspective of the things that we would come to learn about Worf and his people and klingon history and all that you know he says something about you know the the woman that's presented to him by q he says something to the effect of you know she's from a world now alien to me or something to that effect and it makes him seem almost like like the Klingons got conquered and he's, you know, like uh, like a defector or something from, you know, it's almost like they, they borrowed the Conan story for, for Worf to a certain right. degree. He almost seems like maybe he's uh, cut off from his people because he is in Starfleet or something. And we'll, you know, we'll see other Klingons eventually that do kind of look down their nose at him for being in Starfleet rather than, you know, out there with them. But he's not like an outcast or anything. That comes later, but you know, he starting out, he's not, is he? I don't think that so. I no. recall. Yeah, but he was raised by humans. I think part of the Worf story is is how much he chooses to reconnect with his Klingon heritage right. over the years of Next Generation Deep Space Nine, because he was raised by humans. Right. Um, the ending of this one. There are actually two endings or two portions of the ending of this drag this one down badly in my opinion because you know I'll, I'll be fair it's not that bad it's it's pretty cheesy you know it, it's not one of my favorites but it's going along pretty well and I can forgive a lot of the other wonkiness but the way this one ends there's two two things about it that drive me nuts for one thing Riker learns his little lesson, his little morality tale at the end of it. And he's like, gee, I've been stupid, Captain. So they end up flying away at the end and they're all kind of yucking it up. And Riker sits down in his usual place. And and uh, Picard is pretty much like, ah, you know, you were completely insubordinate, but that's okay. And they just fly. And I'm thinking, well, no, no, when he says I've been uh, an idiot, Picard is just like, agreed. <laughs> Right. You know, now make but, it know, right. But he says that he pretty much doesn't go. That's OK. He goes agreed. And is, he, he registers. He's pissed off, but he's going to let it slide. That's bullshit. That's such bullshit. You know, he should he should tell him to, you know, go to your quarters or, you know, At you're least. relieved you <laughs> know, until until I. Yeah. Until I can decide, you know, what I'm going to beat you with, you know, you know, what I mean? let your mother and me talk. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he just lets him resume his position, and it gives the illusion like eh, it's all right. Well, that, you I think know, he you, thinks who would who who wouldn't, you know, fall prey to accuse a little game like that. You know, maybe he was sort of, you know, that was the impression I got. I mean, Riker, I it Riker was sort of forced into using his powers at first in order to trick him into tempting him into him. But I mean, they're still in. 
a quasi-military service. There still has to be discipline maintained. And when you just let somebody get away with being blatantly insubordinate... No, you have to it, do it, it for sets, the benefit of the rest of the crew, basically. Right. It, it, it sets a bad precedent. And I just don't... At this point in his characterization, I don't see Picard as the kind of guy to just kind of go, ah, that's okay. Yeah, no, you know, he's they, very they, uptight he at this point. Yeah, I see him being being a, a total hard ass, and something's going to wind up in Riker's file about this shit. You know, he's going to give him a dressing down at some point. So I, I thought that was very odd. The other thing that this totally drives me fucking bananas in this episode is I don't know if they were intending it as a as an homage or or a callback or what. If they were, they completely dropped the ball. When Q does his little no, and then he disappears, that comes off as a poor man's Charlie X or Squire of Gothos ending, and it drives me nuts. Uh, you know, it really looks bad. All right, you know what I mean. When we get to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe, I'm gonna that, clean that, this all over. That's everything I got. So run with it, man. Well, uh, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm I'm gonna address one of John's points earlier about um about humanity being, you know, singled out by the Q. See, I love the Q episodes, the ones that I've seen. I, I haven't seen all of them, but I love the Q episodes because you you can never tell what his game is. Is it just a, is it just a fuck with their heads for his own pleasure or are there games within games? You know, and so I don't trust the whole singling out of humanity thing. He could he could be playing games with the Ferengi too, and and making them think they're singled out. You know, you don't really know. Okay. And and maybe it's my own imagination filling in the blanks, but I'm hoping that's how they they. Lo- I like that Q is a completely. You know, you can't put your yeah. He's unpredictable. He's mercur- mercurial. You can't put your finger on where he's coming from, what he wants. He seems he'll seem to be playing a game and then it'll switch halfway. And I like that. And I think and and I think, though, it did go to Picard's head that humanity singled out by the end of it, because at the end of it, he makes that that, uh, you know, I think the Q will find that space and time are less complicated than the human equation. Yeah, whatever, man, (laughs) whatever. You know, how arrogant is that? It's such a tiny little pit-pat, trite way to wrap up the episode. And it's pretty arrogant, too, you know. And it's also just sort of bibble-babble, you know, as Mr. T would so eloquently put it. Jibber-jabber. Yeah, it's bibble-babble, jibber-jabber. He's a foo. That's basically it. He's a foo. I, I ain't going on no plane. I ain't getting I ain't on that Enterprise. You. <laughs> you ain't beaming me up on no spaceship, fool. I think I, I think at the end of this, we still don't. And I think his no ending at the very end, it's so timed with Picard so confidently going, well, I think you're, you know, how does Picard know about how the Q work enough to go, I think you got some splaining to do there, Q, you know, and then no, yeah, and then he disappears. Just as his people shows up. And then they come and they take him and they come and they take him away like they were watching and did it on Q with Picard, which leads me to believe that Q could have done that for Picard's benefit. Like, I've got to feed this guy's ego a little bit and make him think like, you know, because then Picard turns away with his smug little smile on his face, just like, ha. So much for Q. <laughs> so, and I, I didn't figure I out a human equation. 
I never thought about that thing about Q. Maybe he's, you know, just playing with Picard and playing with other races at the same time because that definitely makes it very good in the box. Fits in with Q's personality explanation. It's just the fact that this first season of Next Generation has Gene Roddenberry's blood all over <laughs> yeah. it. Oh, yes. And, yes. And I, I know that that's not what he was going for. That humanity is like, you know, the angelic, you know, standout of the entire universe of alien races and it bothers me because that viewpoint does not fit in with the rest of Star Trek, and because that means that now Major Kira and the Trill, their their growth and their journeys don't matter because they're not humans. They're not the humans. This is the human story. I I, I was happier when it was Kirk's story and not all a humanity's story, or it could be all a humanity's story. But you know, I mean, come on, it's because we're humans, so we're going to be the center of the, you know. It, you know, Roddenberry also was like, I want to paint my vision of the future, but at the same time, he wanted it to be a commercial success, too. So he knows that the humans are going to always um, fixate on the humans. I did have just a few uh, a few things, I, you know, little moments that I pulled out of the episode as we were going through. Um, after Tasha, um, Worf becomes chief of security. And at the beginning of this episode, whenever Q shows up, Worf is over the rails, in front of everybody, gun drawn, and then Tasha starts to move. You know, I know that you know uh, somewhat about the the behind the scenes things of the shows and all that. Do you know if Michael Dorn ever busted his ass doing that maneuver? Because it looks very clumsy. You know what I mean? He does it in several episodes where he does that kind of flailing feet jump over the rail. And and it looks a lot of times like he just barely retains his... his, (laughs) You know, hits the hits the ground. Yeah, and I'm always I've always wondered if he ever, you know, if there's maybe a clip out there somewhere where he fucked that up and really like, you know, hurt himself or or got busted up because it looks like that would hurt if you did. You know, I haven't heard of any such story, but I imagine it's a lot easier now in the first season before he gets the bodysuit that he wears in three through seven. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> to like buff up his torso. Um, Q is, I like him as a, as a next generation villain, for lack of a better word. I think that um, the monk scene at the end of this episode, while it might fit in with an overall view of Q, because we have things like the Robin Hood episode and other totally crazy ass shit that he pulls later on. But in this episode, he John Delancey mainly plays the character straight. And whenever he shows up in that robe and he goes totally into cheese mode, to me, that's when the episode just jumps the shark. It just goes yep. completely off the rails. And he's like, I forgive your blasphemy. And I'm like, I just want to smack your face. You know, but whatever. I think um, you're supposed to hate him. I think you're supposed to think that he's just, just like, fuck this guy. I kind of dig him all the way up to that point, though. I mean, I think that yeah. he's doing something kind of interesting with Riker. Uh, I, I think that Riker's journey in this episode is, is is notable, and then he shows up as a carnival freak at the end, and I'm just like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I got your back, then. I yeah, I, I have the same problem with this one. It, it's the end of this one from from a, like the last commercial break forward, where it just yeah, it degenerates into just cheese mode. Yeah, it's a good episode with a really bad ending, but not my favorite key episode by far. Do you think it was just too soon for Q to come back? I'll buy that. I I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think they should have developed the character a little further 
and kind of worked it out in the writer's room before they did bring him back because he was kind of a, a godlike figure in Encounter at Farpoint and then he just turned into freaking Mr. Mixia's Pitalik that Picard had to make, exactly. you know, say his name backwards yeah. at the end of every fucking episode so it'll go away. Right. Which is why That's a good the analogy. more I see, <laughs> Which is why now the more I see Q, the more I just am annoyed with the character. See, that's my problem exactly, is I, I don't, you know, I I caught a little bit of shit about something I said about Q when we reviewed um, Encounter at Farpoint, because I think I created the impression with the listeners that I really hate the character. I don't. I like the character a lot. As a matter of fact, for, for the longest time, Encounter at Farpoint was my favorite episode. For a long time, I just felt like they never did one as good as that one, because for one, I liked all the parallels with star trek the motion picture but also i liked q but you know your analogy of of mixture mystery uh mixes pit like is is spot on because he did he became a joke you know in that first one he's i think he's a legitimate scary threat yeah especially when he's on that throne and like leering at them and and, and towering above them yeah and just and just basically he's as much as a threat as whatever is going on at, in Farpoint Station. And, you know, it, it's where they tried to establish Picard as, like, the new the new deal version of a star uh, of a Starfleet captain. Right. But, but he was, like, he was kind of freaking scary because he could do anything. I mean, he he froze that that one poor crewman in the in you know on the bridge and he had to fall over and yep. you know went through the whole that guy history. died didn't he? Did no he? no they saved no they saved him okay but there's, then there's, after there's that... a one off line that says something to the effect of you know we got him down to sick bay and he's going to be okay or so, yeah it, it's referenced when they come back from the first commercial i mean okay. r- really and truly after this the only awesome thing Q does, and I hate to jump ahead because I know you guys are trying not to do that, but the only awesome thing that Q does is bring the Borg into yes. awareness of the Federation. Well, it's yeah, it's funny you mention that because I was going to say that for the longest time I had maintained that's one of the reasons that the series finale, um, All Good Things, didn't never really worked for me. I've heard a lot of fans really play, praise that. They call it one of their favorites. They think that the series really went out on a high note. But that one never worked completely for me because, for one thing, they tried to bring Q back, back around to scary again because here was, it's revealed, the trial never ended. And he's back in the role of judge, jury, and I guess possibly executioner or whatever's going to happen. And I didn't buy it because by the time we get to that episode, we had seen Q in so many ridiculous episodes, even to the point where he had been punched by uh, what's his face over there on, uh, on DS nine. And once you go past that, it's like, no, now he's a clown. You can't bring it back. I don't, I'm not afraid of this guy anymore. And that's it's like a turning shame. dark side into Mixia's Pitalik and then trying to make him dark side again. Right, exactly. And so, you know, what you said about the, you know, the episode, I think that's Q Who, if I remember right. Yeah. I, what I wish had happened ultimately is that I'm, I'm doing like a mental inventory of, of Q episodes. The only ones that work for me beyond Encounter at Farpoint are Q Who and 
the one, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the one where Picard dies. Tapestry. Tapestry, thank you. And and Q walks him back through his life to a moment of, this is the moment that made you. This is the moment that made Captain Picard. And he lets him make a different life choice. And you see how completely different his life would have, he would not have been anywhere near the same man if he hadn't had this this brash young mistake you know when in his past loved that episode but beyond that i'm hard pressed to think of another q episode that i felt really used the character to his full potential i think most of them were ass clown episodes that that just chipped away at the the character like this one I will say that I liked all good things. I did think it was a good finale, but it wasn't for the Q reason. It was for the the tying together, the continuity, and the time travel, and all the different, you know, seeing characters and Easter eggs. You know, that side of the episode, but the Q trial doesn't work for me. And even here in this episode, he pretty much says that you passed your trial. We're interested in you now, and now we're going to play with you. Um, Yeah, but why believe anything he says at any point? That's true, too. I think, you know. Because I like John Delancey. I think he's pretty, and I want to believe everything he says. Um, I do want to ask everyone, because, um, again, I, I, I'm a little bit behind on my two true freaks listening, so I haven't heard your commentaries on this before, but Denise Crosby, Marita Sirtis, or Gates McFadden? Any preferences? Denise Gates Crosby. McFadden. Oh, you're gross, man. Oil them all up. <laughs> bathe, okay, now, bathe them, oil okay, them, and okay, bring them okay. to me. Here, here. Here's here's the problem with Marina Sirtis. They, she was always played as to being like the most beautiful, but you know that naked she was probably like really freaking ugly and really just should have kept the clothes on. Plus, she has an annoying accent, and I hate the character. I uh, have a book that proves that she's not so hot naked. Um, fools, you fools. Tasha Yar. Well, again, I've I, I've seen what that looks like. They probably no, don't have STDs in the future. Remember that. If they don't have <laughs> headaches, true. they probably so, don't have STDs. So Denise Crosby sure as hell looks a lot better clothed than naked. But Gates McFadden, I had like a serious redhead thing going on when I was a teenager that uh, that a a a, a particular ex girlfriend kind of killed. But you know, I had the biggest crush on her growing up. So yeah. Yeah, they all push see, different buttons. They all push different hands. buttons for me, but in all equally, <laughs> I could not. Yeah, kind of the same. We're looking at their 1987 versions. Um, all three of them do something for me. I think that, in my opinion, Denise Crosby' age has been nicest to her of the three. Yes, but uh, yeah, for me personally, it's definitely Denise Crosby. Um, Marina Sirtis, uh, not with your dick, and uh, you can. Uh, uh, Gates McFadden is, is just is just creepy to think about. I, I'm sorry, she's just uh, no. I picture nah, Troy nah. with full, like not to get graphic, but full pubic hair and armpit hair. <laughs> I, that's what I picture. Yeah, she, on she's natural. Got, like, she's got. She's got serious seventies bush. She's, a, she's on, on the, I think she, she has like she's on natural. the trees, doesn't she? That's fine with me, man. That's <laughs> Which fine one with me. is this? Marina Sirtis. Let's go. Let's go with this. Chris would Chris would do a three way with her and her mom. How about that? Wait, which one are you talking about? Did I'm you ta- say Marina Sirtis? I'm talking about Troy. 
Oh yeah, okay. Troy and her mom are. Right, yeah, I, I, I would bet they're both on natural. That's disgusting. What? No, that's kind of hot. Whatever you say. Now we're gonna get a young version of her mom, or are we gonna get Luoxano and all of her evil? Yeah, no, like that, like on the show, like on the show. I would, I would, I would, because I have a feeling <sighs> that their race would be. Yeah, it would be. What bothers me the is the very next episode is a Troy and her mom episode. So, so now I'm you gonna have that shit. You stuck can't in my have head. sex oh. with Troy after Worf, though, because you're just never gonna. You're just never gonna be able to. Yeah, he's gonna hollow her <laughs> yeah, out yeah, Thanksgiving turkey. That, so. It's oh, gonna God. be, you know, she's not good. You, yeah, that the bar is gonna be set way higher than any. You're gonna have to like strap like three boards to your. You're ass gonna be so taking space vi- space. You better take some space Viagra and steroids just to, you know, even get into the wheelhouse of. Well, here's another episode I can't here. play in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what are you, what are you talking about? Kirk you're, would be the just... only one with confidence to go after a Klingon. You know, Scotty, all he the married time, like, Dad, just, Dad just played me the latest episode of Tales from the JSA, and it's like maybe one of the most raw, like that Back to the Bins episode where we talked about World's Finest 271. You, you <laughs> What you les- let your son listen to is kind of... Daddy, yeah, I, you... I listened to Two True Freaks. What's a vagina? <laughs> It's a state. <laughs> it's just below oh. Pennsylvania. It's a state of mind, son. A state of mind. <laughs> it's a state just south of heaven. And <laughs> no, but you had said about Kirk, Kirk bagging a Klingon in those uh, Shatner books, the ones that he wrote. Or well, no, I'm saying he would. You know, I, I, oh, I'm yeah, saying he would yeah. follow. I, I'm saying he would have sex with a girl. After, he would be confident enough to have sex with a girl after a Klingon and be like, "Am I hurting you, honey?" <laughs> Are we talking about Troy after Worf? Yeah. Okay, talk about most awkward romance ever. Yeah. And and Riker still wanted that shit too. Riker married her. I think Marina and Jonathan really wanted that couple to get back together. I don't think Marina Sirtis was too fond of the Worf romance. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I don't think anybody was. Were they? I mean, did anybody really? dig on that because i never heard much good said about it in fan circles or what the only thing i wanted was for them to address it afterwards to say what happened it wasn't until peter david wrote imzadi 2 that we got some sort of answer of what happened to Worf and troy before you oh, okay yeah see i think don't I, spoil i haven't read that one yet so don't spoil it for me i don't have a problem okay. with that sort of stuff because that sort of stuff how ha- you know weird couplings happen in in real life and and then I saw that the the next generation was going in the direction of you know it was more of a serialized you know story an ongoing story so you would have people hooking up and stuff rather than just a episodic thing so I I, I thought that was an interesting you know that that's the thing is you know I mean after a while yeah, the, the writers question, start liking yeah. their characters and thinking I want to get my characters to have some nookie lately. And you know, at first, it, you know, it was probably male writers getting get, giving all getting all the female characters, and after a while, all the male actors were probably like, "When when's um when does Worf get to uh get a little bit?" I just Scott, real quick for your question, uh, have you uh-huh. read the first Imzadi book? Yeah, yeah, I did. It's been a long okay. time, but yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. Triangle is not quite as good, but it is good. Well, I forgot to write this down, but it just occurred to me that I remember seeing this this one part. Do you guys know is um, 
what's his name? Burton, LeVar Burton. Is, is he gay, gay or straight? Do you know? I, I think he's straight. I think is he's he? married he with a bunch of kids. Yeah, see, I thought he was too, and uh, I thought he was married with a bunch of but kids too. But this is the second but... time he, he – well, this is Jordy and not LeVar Burton, but this is the second time that he's like <clears> – <throat> remember the first time and you wrote it off? <laughs> oh, pardon me. <clears throat> My neighbors are cooking steaks and the smoke's coming in, but, man, it smells awesome. It's 1 o'clock in the morning too and they're cooking steaky steaks. Anyway, but remember that it was when they all caught the fever and – and Lavar, I can't remember what he said to Jordy, but it was you know it's a it was very sim. And you just were like, "Well, I don't think that's what he meant." But this one, he's like, "Oh, hey, not bad, Jordy." So that's two. Maybe this is why Jordy had problems with women before season five. But then, <laughs> but then Jordy, when he took his when he took his visor off and got a, a um um. Uh, who who, who was, it? was it? It was Tasha. That's right. And he's you're yeah. just as beautiful as I, you know. As yeah, I that was another moment I thought was really kind of. I mean, would you really say that, you know, in front of everybody? Well, on the maybe Jordy, maybe Jordy LaForge. Yeah. His character's kind of like an open, very open Lavar Burtony sort of character. He's a very like, you know, laid back, open personality. You know, he wears his. He seems to wear his emotions and um that's true motivations right on his sleeve. And I love when he, when they get beamed back to or not beamed back when Q sends him back to the planet I do like where he goes ah oh, Christ not again yeah, yeah, yeah. that was pretty cool <laughs> I was gonna say I think that Jordy just has social issues doesn't always know what the right thing to say is right, not right. that I can relate to that at all he's supposed <laughs> to be I think he's supposed to be the 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 what the nerd the proxy for the nerds to watch that to you know Jordy, maybe not the most social guy in the world, and he's a techie guy, sort of guy, right? And just generally a good guy, you know. He's the. Well, I, I just asked that question because when they beam down to the disaster site to help those people, they come down. I think it's like an incline or something with a bunch of rubble and shit, and there's like some water and rocks and all this stuff. And everybody comes down, and they, they kind of run down the hill a little bit, and then they have to kind of you know carefully step through everything. If you watch him in the scene where he comes down, he's got his arms up and kind of just kind of doing like a tiny Tim like kind of like the tulips kind of, yeah, kind of very effeminate. And it just kind of – it's the first time I n- ever noticed him do something like that, and I was just like, well, that was kind of weird. So that's what made me wonder about that. Well, I think LeVar Burt – Burton's got a little effeminateness to him, you know. I mean, anybody who's seen Reading Rainbow <laughs> can uh, probably attest to that. But now we're going to see him at Dragon Con. He's going to kick, kick our asses. <laughs> Don't forget, he was also Kunta Kinte. Yeah, exactly. That's how you know. I mean, that's how he's. Dude, like the entire freaking cast of Next Gen is going to be at Dragon Con this year. And Neil oh, Adams, you mentioned there. Neil Adams in the comics, and he's going to be there. Yeah. You can get that ad, that Neil Adams ad autographed at Dragon Con. <laughs> now, John, you're coming from from Texas to to Dragon Con. We could just use a transporter again, and yeah, if y'all can beam me over, that'll save me plane fare. Because right now, I don't think I'm coming to Dragon Con. Well, if you buy your bus tickets right now, they'll be really cheap. <laughs> That's true. And you get. To, I, can't, I can't buy McDonald's right now, so we'll. Uh, the, the hell of Greyhound is another story, but. <laughs> I'm well familiar with Greyhound. I, when I was a teenager, 
we lived in the Dallas area, and my dad lived in the Austin area. Ah. So, yeah, we went Greyhound back and forth. It's a three-and-a-half-hour drive uh, every other weekend for a lot of summers. Good times. <laughs> I did a, a week-long tour trip on a Greyhound once, and that was a little personal slice of hell. I actually experienced the diminution of the uh, comic book industry because there was this uh, convenience store we would stop at that was one hour away from the Austin uh, uh, bus stop, and they had comic books. I bought all sorts of Spider-Mans there over the over the years, and then they stopped carrying them. And uh, I was like, man, how am I going to read on this bus if I don't have Spider-Man comics? And I didn't bring a book because I was going to buy the Spider-Man comics, and, and they didn't happen anymore. I was really pissed. I shot someone that day, but we'll talk about that. Excellent. Still taping. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. We got it down here that you are coming to Dragon Con. And no, he so is coming, or yeah, he's not? No, yeah, he's the, not coming. He's no, he's hawking uh, everything I, he owns and coming to Dragon Con. <laughs> <laughs> when is that's it? what I got out of all of that. I don't know what you guys got out Chris, of it. Chris, you're you're creeping me out about wanting John to come to Dragon Con. I mean, I'm trying dude, to drag okay. everybody there. Drag everybody on to Dragon Con. <laughs> when is it? What is it like September? It's over the um, Labor Day Labor weekend. Day weekend. La- so you get Labor to, Day weekend. Yeah, you get to miss the Jerry Lewis telethon. Come on, that's worth it in itself. That's true. Where? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Hot Atlanta. Okay, if I can make it happen, I'll make it happen. You can make it happen. There will be uh, financial fingers. aid coming in from the government that time. I might be able to do something. <laughs> if you can get there on the government's. Um, It'll be the government's money. It'll be my money, but yeah, you know, six years from now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Oh, I think oh, we're wrapped up. I don't oh, think. Yo, I don't shit, think we're wrapped we up at it, yeah. all, man. I have my Star Trek computer here, hopefully working a little better than the transporter earlier. Which reminds me, we got to call up the janitor to take care of that mess over there before. Yeah, let the yeah, dog it's, 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 yeah, no. who, who's buying me new shoes? <laughs> uh, okay, I'm firing it up. And we have ooh. Well, this is definitely in the third season. It came it just spit out number seventy five. Number seventy five. We may have already is... done that one. Oh no we have not. No? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Chris, I believe this is the one episode you have never <gasps> seen of Star Trek. This is, is The Way to Eden. Oh. Is, this, is this the one? This is the only Star Trek original series that I have never seen. Well, wow. if there's never, one episode, never seen. I've only seen the seen end of it. This is the one, and I've seen clips <laughs> now, from I it. I will say the the one to mourn to have never seen, if that's a phrase, is uh, fucking uh, Plato's stepchildren. With oh, the little he likes kid. that piece of shit like episode. The- Alexander, I'm standing here wondering. And the big guy with the big poofy dress. That so shall you do, so shall you do, yeah. I like the little... See, I don't, I don't even remember that part. I remember Alexander, and I remember um, Kirk and Spock and Togas, and that's about all I remember. Oh, oh no, no, come no, on. I Spock does like... his tap dance in that one? Yes, Christ. I'm totally that's... thinking of a different show. That... The Children Shall Lead. 
That's the one I'm talking about. Oh, oh yeah, that one. That one's not bad, though. I, I, I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but this one That's here, with the evil one, Burger the, King. The way, the way to Eden is... I, I'm actually looking forward it to this. It has Spock jamming out with space hippies. Well, the thing that that's actually kind of kind of funny for me in this one is I don't have any idea what the character's name is in the episode. It's not Doctor Severin, but it's the other male hippie guy. Is the guy I'm pretty sure that in the Blues Brothers tells John Belushi it's going to be hard to eat corn on the cob with no fucking teeth. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's the same guy. And to see him in this playing a fucking space hippie just cracks me up to <laughs> But yeah, it's, oh my God, is this one. Well, we'll just have to, we'll experience it next time around. And I'll but, be uh, experiencing it for the first time ever. I'm so excited. So excited! You know I'm good. You know I gotta love it, no matter what, no matter how. To- and I've seen, I've seen the end of it. I know how it ends already. And I've seen, you know, Spock jamming along in the space harp and improvising, and and I do realize that it's full of like antiquated, anarchic or not anarchic. What is the word? Um, anorexic. Hell, I don't remember. Um, (laughs) anachronistic thank you thank you you, person with a brain mike saves the day yeah (laughs) oh my god um just call me captain vocab you know hep hep cat talk and hippie hippie speak we reach brother yeah yeah i like i love that but you know all i know about this all i can remember about this one is that you know whenever any time in my life someone has said you know, oh, Star Trek sucks, or I don't like Star Trek, or you know, what the hell's up with Star Trek? I just prayed to God that they didn't know about this particular episode <laughs> because I can defend the series and I can forgive anything and explain away most anything, but when they throw that one at you, then it becomes incredibly hard to defend Star Trek. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just to just to sort of bring it uh, a circle back on to something we were saying earlier the original star why the original star trek still you know it, it people look at that as the the penultimate star trek and that you know there's a lot of people who don't understand that the testament to that is you know there wouldn't be any of these other star trek without that for the very reasons of you know that's why it was very popular because of the quality of it but I, I've been having a lot of hope lately, and this was something Scott, you used to were talking about when the movie came out, when the 2009 movie came out, about how that would sort of, rip to some of the younger people and to the people who were not into the original season series, would sort of replace it. But I've been noticing on watching YouTube lately, there's been a lot of like fan edit things and um, songs cut to the original Star Trek. Yep. Not to the movie or, you know, or the next generation. There's just a lot of stuff. And, it, and, and you can tell it's, it's not being done by like 40, 50-year-old old Star Trek fan guys. It's being done by younger people. So that means, and you know, now that maybe they can go onto YouTube and watch every Star Trek episode, that maybe a couple of them tried it out and got hooked, and maybe, there is, maybe it actually is fueling some more 
interest in, in the origins of Star Trek. So I'm, I, I'm starting to get a little hopeful about that. And maybe I won't, maybe I just won't slash my wrists tonight. <laughs> that's a dark way to bring that <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was trying to bring it out on a positive show. note. Visit our website at two truefreaks.libson.com. Two truefreaks.libson.com is spelled T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libson, which is L I B S Y N dot com. You can email two truefreaks directly at two truefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S C O T T. G-A-R-D-N-E-R Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode 
people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. Hi, my name is Paul Spataro. Back in 2004, my family lost my older brother Michael to pancreatic cancer. Before Michael was diagnosed with this disease, I really didn't know too much about it. But the truth of the matter is, it's a devastating disease, and in general, once somebody is diagnosed with it, it's too late to actually help them. I've learned that pancreatic cancer is the nation's fourth leading cause of cancer death, and that the survival rate for the disease has not improved in 25 years. I also learned about the Lustgarden Foundation. That's a foundation that's named after a man named Mark Lustgarden. Mr. Lustgarden was a high-ranking executive in the company of Cablevision, and when he was diagnosed with the disease, despite the fact that he was a wealthy man, there was nothing that could be done, and unfortunately, he passed away from the disease as well. Moved by that loss, Cablevision has started a foundation in his honor, and they've generously underwritten all expenses of that foundation so that any fundraising efforts can be used strictly towards research of pancreatic cancer. I learned of the Lust Garden Foundation shortly after my brother passed away, and I started that year walking in its Long Island fundraiser walk, and I've walked every year since. This year, the walk is going to be on July 25th. I will be walking along with my wife, my son, my daughter, my mother, my sister, and other family members. We walk as Team Spataro in an effort to raise funds, raise awareness, and to honor my brother. I hope you would consider donating to this worthwhile cause. There will be a link to our team page on this podcast's homepage. Please consider clicking on that link and donating. And keep in mind, no amount is too small. There will be people who donated very, very generously, but don't be swayed by that. Any amount will help and brings us that much closer to a cure. Nobody should have to suffer the way my brother did, and I hope that one day, through the efforts of the Lust Garden Foundation, all such suffering can be ended. I thank you for your consideration. Hey there, Thomas Madness here, host of Thomas's Prerogative over at the Shaft Podcast. I'm here to announce the Shaft Podcast fun, exciting events that we're bringing to the Metrocon convention. What's Metrocon, you may ask? Well, Metrocon is the largest anime convention in Florida, and the Shaft Podcast is proud to bring four exciting panels that we will be bringing to Metrocon, hosted by yours truly. Now, what are these panels? Let me tell you. 
first on Friday at 5 p.m. in room 19, you have Evolution in American Anime, where I will explain to you how American animation had a hand in the creation of anime, and how anime now in turn has come and influenced American animation. The next panel will be later that night at room 13 slash 14, a special event called Anime Theater Live. You'll take a movie riff on it. That's right. You a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000 or Riff Tracks? This is the event for you because we will be riffing on a movie. And you know I know what? If you say a good line that makes everybody laugh, we will give you a prize. It'll be anything from an anime DVD to manga to many other prizes we'll have with us. Our next event will take the very next day on Saturday in room 18. It will be Thomas's prerogative live. Yes, I will be giving my unbiased opinion upon the state of the anime industry. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not going to be pretty. And then finally on Sunday, we will have another presentation, Anime and New Media. If you want to know where you can find your very favorite anime on the internet, or try to find where you can unite with fans on the internet as well, we'll tell you how to get there. So come down to Metricon from July 23rd to July 25th and join us in our four exciting panels that the Shaft Podcast presents. You can find Metricon by going to www.metroconventions.com and you can also find the Shaft Podcast by going to www.animeshaft.com. So, until July, folks, peace.